Hello, and welcome back to Weird Comics History, episode 21, where we give you some weird comics history. Uh, when we get around to it, usually on Tuesdays on the uh, Podbean <laughs> site. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. And uh, you can find us every Sunday doing the Cosmic Treadmill on chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And during the week, there are uploads also. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and... No man escapes Chris and Reggie. Mm. So, uh, yeah, this week, uh, Chris wanted to do this. I, I think the real reason you wanted to do this is because you broke down this entire event on your personal blog. Chris is on <laughs> InfiniteEarths.com, and you were like, well, I'm yes. not just going to waste all that uh, research on, uh, <laughs> you know, just the blog. So <laughs> we're going to do the history of the DC Comics Millennium event from 1988, which was a... Uh, Big event that crossed over into many, many, many issues, and we're going to go through every single one of them here on this extra-long Weird Comics History podcast. But uh, first, let's talk a little bit about the uh, crossover culture after the after the first big DC event. Yeah, um, starting in uh, 1985, we had uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. So I'm sure we're not <laughs> we're not telling people things they don't already know. This was a uh, 12-part maxi series published by DC by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Uh, while it wasn't the first ever comic book crossover event, it was to this point and perhaps even today the grandest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it proved to be a sales success, and the tie-in issues, of which there were a ton. They all saw new or renewed popularity and higher than usual sales. In seeing how successful this was, DC Comics decided the follow-up crisis in 1986 with Legends. Now, that was a six-part event series we may cover eventually. Yep. And that was uh, by John Ostrander, Len Wein, and John Byrne, which, too, came with a plethora of tie-in issues, uh, 22, in fact. Uh, also, from this series sprang forth new titles, including Flash, Justice League, Suicide Squad, and Wonder Woman. And then another year, another crossover event, 1987 sees the eight-part millennium hit the racks, although our cover dates will be for 1988. The event actually occurred in the fall of 1987. This event brings with it many tie-ins, which we will be (laughs) discussing today. Grab some snacks and drinks. This one's got 37 tie-in issues, at least as we know. Yes. (laughs) To to date, anyway. Even though all all the promotional pieces describe it as a 56-chapter novel, wherein Steve Englehart had to become a juggler who could keep up to 56 balls in the air simultaneously. And, uh, Quite a feat. We'll see what you think about how he did there. <laughs> now, uh, he didn't want to impose himself on all the other creative teams, and uh, he did say, you know, of leaving room for those regular teams to cre- to provide input on their own titles, he says, I'm enough of a prima donna to know that I'd hate it if someone came up to me and said, I've decided what you're going to write in your book. So when I plotted out the other, when I plotted out what the other characters would do, I just kept it in the same ballpark. If a guy had to eat a bologna sandwich, I didn't care if he did that while punching out supervillains, hanging out with his girlfriend, or hanging upside down. He continued to say, I approach it in a pretty symbolic manner. I tried to make sure there was a coherent story involving all 56 parts. When the parts were out of my province, I'd tell the writer what I wanted to accomplish. He'd tell me what he was doing in his strip, and we'd try to work out something that met both of our needs. Coordination on the project was that a, was that a snicker? <laughs> anyway, coordination on the product on the project, along with Engelhart, were editors Andy Helfer, Greg Weisman, and continuity editor Bob Greenberger. Engelhart says, hopefully, it will come out looking like Millennium is really happening within the DC universe at a particular time, and the characters don't just take a left turn to get involved with the Millennium. 
Yeah, now before we get too deep in here, let's take a step back and discuss the conception and creative team assembly. Uh, editor Andy Helfer contacted Steve Englehart in September of 1986 to explain to him that he'd been chosen to write the big limited series in 1987. Helfer would even face his fear of flying to visit Englehart for a brainstorming session in Houston, Texas. Englehart recalls, when dealing with the DC Universe, the obvious path is to end up with the Guardians and the Green Lantern Corps. They didn't pick me because I wrote Green Lantern Corps, but when I started looking at something big enough to encompass the DC Universe, the Green Lantern Corps seemed appropriate. It was right there. Uh, also, Helfer taught Engelhart how to spell Millennium, because he uh, would always <laughs> spell it with one N. That's right. Uh, well, you know, most of us, we got to learn that during Y2K, so that's, uh, that helped yes. us out. That was, this is long <laughs> before that. I mean, it's important to say, too, Steve Engelhart was no slouch. He was, you know, a very well-respected comics writer. He had done a, a run on Batman and Green Lantern Corps for DC, and also he wrote The Avengers, a bunch of stuff for Marvel. So mm -hmm. this, this, was, this was coming with some good pedigree here. Uh, some more quotes from Steve. He says, it's worth noting that we created this in November 1986 when the concept of Millennium was essentially unknown, a new era as yet nowhere close. We were probably the first to deal with it. Yeah, uh, nobody else on the planet was excited about or had even thought about right. the year 2000. <laughs> or, or was it 2001? Well, know. We, you know, that, the jury's still <laughs> a little bit out on that. But I mean, I, you know, <laughs> just a couple of things to keep to mind where the Ramones did End of the Century, a song in 78. And Roy Ayers did a song 2000 Black about a black millennium in uh, 1971. I mean, you know, so we go back to sci-fi. People have been... Thinking about this for quite a while, what would happen sure. in the 21st century? But anyway, uh, wasn't there a space odyssey? <laughs> that's right. That's 2001, exactly a space yeah. odyssey. A certain little, little Arthur C. Clarke book. But anyway, uh, Steve goes on to say it's also worth noting that Millennium included the first openly gay hero in comics. As a true cross section of humanity was chosen to become part of the new age, I figured that once I broke that barrier, there'd probably be a dozen in five years' time. Okay. Yeah, it's not. Uh, you'll see that quote becomes a little regrettable later on. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Steve wasn't alone. We also have Joe Staten and Ian Gibson. Uh, Steve recalls, while Joe Staten was vacationing and visiting with me in California, Ian Gibson was brought in to do three issues of Green Lantern Corps. We liked his work so much that we decided to do Millennium together. Unfortunately, that meant Joe had to drop off GLC while on Millennium, but Bill Willingham was taking over for GLC, so that's not a bad trade-off. Uh, to for uh, you know for completionism here, Ian Gibson penciled Green Lantern Corps uh, 214 through 216, July through September 1987. Bill Willingham penciled GLC uh, 218 through 220, November 1987 through January 1988 cover dates. Englehart felt that the team of Staten and Gibson lives up to the level of quality of prior DC event artists George Perez from Crisis and John Byrne from Legends. Mm. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a debatable thing, but you know, but again, Joe Staten, no slouch. You know, I no, not these, at all. These, these are two names, Englehart and Staten. You feel like you're getting a big event. This is a big event. They're not they're not throwing schlubs at this thing. So no. Uh, just, just setting the stage for what we'll, what we will delve into later on. So the concept of this thing, the idea was that the guardians of the, these are the little blue guys, uh, along with the Zamoroans, which were the tall, white ladies, uh, <laughs> took a step <laughs> back from the DCU in Green Lantern Volume Two, Number Two Hundred, May nineteen eighty six, so that they might, you know, get busy. You know what I mean? A uh, <laughs> little bird uh, wow wow. Um, Though not before explaining why Earth had, by comparison to other planets, had such a high concentration of green la of lantern types, and it's it was because over the next thousand years, 
Hey, that's a millennium. Hey, what do you know? Uh, Earth would be the next planet to develop immortals. Uh, uh, so that's why they had to have all the uh, guarding, people guarding it, I guess. A guardian, Harupa Handohu and Zamorin, <laughs> Nadia Safir, return in order to put into motion the ascension of this next race of immortals, who are ten more or less ordinary earthlings, who we will meet shortly. Yes, uh, the villains of this piece are the longtime foes of the Guardians, the Manhunters. The Manhunters were the Guardians' first attempt at a peacekeeping organization billions of years in the past. Uh, their second attempt, the Green Lantern Corps, was just a tad bit more successful. Uh, the Manhunters are essentially immortal androids, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. Uh, they would turn against the Guardians, and after their initial defeat, turned into a sort of underground cult-like collective dispersed throughout several planets. Uh, still hell-bent on stopping the Guardians, the Manhunters will do whatever they can to stop their Millennium Project. Yeah, they they came, they came popped up over the years, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, in the 1940s, there were Manhunters from both DC Comics and Quality Comics, uh, which National DC took ownership of during the 1960s. There was another Manhunter created by Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson, who had a run of backup features in Detective Comics during the early 1970s. And in 1975, Jack Kirby created a Manhunter that appeared in first issue special number five. Steve Englehart would do an extended run on Justice League of America that would attempt to tie the whole Michigas together. And we'll go into further depth a little later on when we discuss Secret Origins number 22, which is that exact attempt that we're talking about. Yes. Now, The Chosen. We have uh, the first one here, Thomas Kalamaku. First appearance, Green Lantern, Volume 2, Number 2, September, October 1960, cover date. Friend and confidant of Hal Jordan. He's an Inuit mechanic, sometimes referred to as Pie Face. But it's because he took a pie in the face, Chris. See, see, that's it. That's why they explain that's, it. See? That's got to be it. That's got to be the only reason. <laughs> <laughs> At present, he hails from Los Angeles, California, U.S. of A. Uh, next guy is Floronic Man, Jason Woodrow. His first appearance was the Atom, June, July, 1962 cover date. He's an exile from the extra-dimensional world of Floria, the foe of Ray Palmer, eventual thorn in the side of the Swamp Thing as well. Uh, especially at this time, he probably would have been equated closer to the Swamp Thing. Probably. Uh, currently hails from Arkham Asylum, Gotham City, U.S.A. Betty Clawman, first appearance, Millennium Number 2, January 1988. As a matter of fact, all the remaining Chosen will first appear in Millennium Number 2. Right. Uh, she is an Aborigine woman who will not shut up about the dream time. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and she hails from Ayers Rock, Australia. Uh, we have Takio Yakata. He's a corporate businessman and CEO. He hails from Tokyo, Japan. There was also Zhang Po, a member of the People's Liberation Army, hails from Shanghai, China. Nikolai Latikov, KGB agent, of course, hails from Krasnodrak Zarsk. <laughs> Sorry, I'm really, you know, I'm very apologetic to the uh, Russian people, but the uh, Krasnodarsk USSR, I think that's as good as we're going to get. And you need to apologize to them because they, they seem to download a lot of our stuff. That's right. I, I, I assume <laughs> they got to be listening to this. So, uh, yeah. We're household uh, names over there. If you, <laughs> yeah, we, we, start, we try, to get, try to get the names of your countries right as much as we can. Um, and then Celia Windward, a Jamaican anarchist with a horrendously written accent. And, and we, we will talk about that as we go into the issues. Yes. Living in the UK, she hails from Birmingham. Uh, we have Salima Baranizar. She's an Iranian woman who hails from Quam, Iran. I think it's Quam, right? Yeah, that sounds all right. 
We have Jan Wilhelm Jan Willem Kroof, a South African government minister. He's a fat, bald, white, racist jerk. Hails from Pretoria, South Africa. Then we have Gregorio de la Vega, a flamboyantly gay Peruvian. Not that they can say so outright. No. And uh, he hails from Trujillo, Peru. And there were a couple of almost chosens. There was Raul, whose first appearance was never number zero in Nevervember 19 Never. He was mentioned in Millennium 2 as being part of the chosen, however, passed it over due to his senility. He does not appear at all, and it's unknown who his substitute is. It's sort of like what it is a weird little thing just thrown in there that. Yeah. But whatever, you know, we did piece mentioned and thrown away. Yeah, and another near miss is one of my favorites here, Terra, Tara Markov. First appearance, New Teen Titans number 26 from December 1982. It was revealed in Millennium number one, she was one of the chosen. Uh, the Zamoroans are shocked and disappointed to learn that at present, Ms. Markov is very much dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, to fill us all in here, uh, not telling you anything you don't know, she dies at the end of uh, Tales of the Teen Titans annual number three from July 1984. You can check out episode 25 of the Cosmic Treadmill for our coverage of the Judas Contract and the life and times of Tara Markov. And her substitute here is uh, the Floronic Man, Jason Woodruff. Right, yeah, he controls, you know, he attached to the green and the plants, and she controlled the dirt, and that's, I guess, I figure that's close enough. Close enough. As long as they control some <laughs> element. I gotta say, it's too, in the ballpark. this one little scene where they find out that Tara is dead, you know, Geoforce, her brother... Mm-hmm. Mentions it, and I, it's one of the it's one of the few times that you see connectivity between them. You yeah. know what I mean? Like in in uh, in actual comics storytelling, you know, it's usually just sort of a known entity. But they don't they, they don't really interact except for these little brief asides. And this is one of them, and I like to see it. That's all. I really yes. have no no more to say about it than that. <laughs> uh, anyway, so let's sink right in. You know, we keep, we cannot delay any longer. This is a, there are a lot of books involved in this uh, event, <laughs> so we're just going to jump right in. With Millennium Number 1, January 1988 cover date. The story title is over, and it's by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten. In Manhattan Beach, California, the Manhattan the Manhunters convene to set in motion the awakening of their sleeper agents. The sleepers include Ferris Aircraft Big With Mr. Smith, Clark Kent's gal pal Lana Lang, Blue Devil's sister Mary Frances Cassidy, Captain Adam Project scientist Harry Hadley, Booster Gold's manager Dirk Davis, Obsidian's probably confused girlfriend Marcy Cooper, Blue Beetle foe Overthrow, and The Flash's father, Rudolph West. These are all sleeping manhunters, folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are being activated in order to stop the pending Millennium event. Not this series, mind you, because that would just make them the good guys. (laughs) They're wanting to stop the Guardians plot. They're calling that the Millennium event. Tom Kalamaku, Pieface, uh, a.k.a., is spying on the proceedings and is discovered by the Manhunters. They shout that no man escapes them as they beat him bloody and unconscious and leave him on an airport runway directly at the path of a 747. Yeah, we pop over to the Green Lantern Citadel, where a lot of this story is going to take oh, place. Yeah. And the uh, Earthbound Lanterns are, ex- are enjoying some R&R. They're all dressed in their, <laughs> their summer game gear. Here. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Uh, they are joined by Guardian Harupa Handuhu and Zamoran Nadia Safir, who informed them they have returned from their sexile, which is our crude attempt at Portman doing <laughs> sexy time in exile, to seek out the humans they have chosen to transform into immortals to propel the Earth forward into the future. These humans who must be protected from the Manhunters. The Landons get right on drafting some of their superpowered pals into protector roles, including the Justice League International, the Outsiders, Infinity Incorporated, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, Aquaman, 
Green Arrow, Firestorm, Flash, and Superman. Uh, it's here that we learn that Terra, uh, Tara Markov, right. was among was to be among the chosen. Her brother Geoforce informs the Zamoroans that she is no longer among the living. Uh, the heroes are not immediately on board with this Millennium Project, and, and it isn't until uh, Superman delivers an impassioned proposal that they all agree. Uh, the heroes, uh, you know, they they like, okay, we'll do it, but sure. first they're going to disperse back to their home bases. And during this dispersal, we see some Manhunter sleeper reveals, mm. which include Justice League International's Red Rocket Number 7, Firestorm's police ch- uh, Pittsburgh police contact Chief Ferguson, uh, the Outsiders and Metamorphos associate Dr. Jace, the Olympian god Pan, and again, <laughs> and again, uh, Wally's pop, Rudy West. I mean, the, the fact that the god Pan, the nature god Panism, it's, it's like finding out Jesus Christ was a manhunter or something, you know what I mean? Or like, you know, it's like Noah's well, flood. The story's not over yet. Oh, I, that's true. I, let's, not, let's not give away the ending here. So, uh, all right, first of our crossovers now in week one of Millennium, uh, Flash Volume 2, Number 8, Purple Haze is the title by Mike Barron and Jackson Butch Geis. Geis? Geis. Geis. Uh, Flash and the Red Trinity, a group of speedsters sometimes called the Capitalist Couriers, do battle with the... Haze. That's right. Uh, <laughs> do battle with the uh, Blue Trinity, who were the Red's predecessors at a Soviet border. After the battle, Flash heads to the Green Lantern Citadel <laughs> to be present for the big speech in Millennium Number 1. He then returns home where he learns that his father, Rudolph, is a manhunter. Rudolph informs Wally that his mother is dead and sticks the Blue Trinity on him. They beat him down until the Red Trinity arrived to even the odds. The Blue Trinity and Manhunter West all flee. Wally is then informed by some officers that his mother is still alive and in Miami. When he calls her, she tells him that his father has died. Mm. Whoa. We jump over to Firestorm the Nuclear Man, Volume 2, Number 67. Uh, Dialogues by John Ostrander and J.J. Birch. Ronnie's having trouble controlling the Firestorm Matrix after being transformed against his will, and along with Mikhail Arkadine, who is the, his new other half at this point, uh, he cannot get through to the Firestorm persona. Uh, it seems that they are having also having some lapses in his memory. After leaving the Green Lantern Citadel, uh, Firestorm heads to Professor Stein's office, who is the you know his original other half, and uh, winds up running into the chief of police, Bernard Ferguson, who reveals himself to be. A manhunter. <laughs> Ferguson dupes Firestorm into believing that he, Firestorm, was created by the manhunters. Whoa. And that will play in later on. Justice mm-hmm. League International number nine, Seeing Red by Keith Giffen, J.M. J. DeMatteis, and Kevin McGuire. As the JLI leave the Citadel, Rocket Red number seven reveals himself to be a manhunter. He traps the League in their ship and aims at a Bialian oil re- refinery. Uh, Oberon calls in more Rocket Reds who are able to stop the craft from crashing, and Rocket Red Number 7 is destroyed. In New York, Maxwell Lord is attacked by his secretary, Mrs. Ms. Wootenhofer, who is revealed to be a manhunter. Lord's computer system takes her out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hop over to Outside is Number 27, Robot Tyrants of Land, written by Mike W. Ball with art by Eric Lawson. Uh, the outsiders return to Markovia, and they meet with their associate, Dr. Jace, who reveals herself to be <clears throat> a manhunter. <Whoa. laughs> 
In the lead-up to this, uh, Jace had been working closely with Metamorpho in an attempt to restore him to his human form. In so doing, now Jace is able to control Rex, who goes turncoat and defeats his teammates. Uh, the Outsiders wake up in a dream simulation world of the Atomic Knights. And we probably should mention that Atomic Knight Gardner Grail is currently a member of the Outsiders. Mm. Uh, sort the of weird, in, we're sort of a weird time for the outsiders right here, you know. It's it was. A, it's a team that yeah. I like, but this is this is a time it got a little odd for me, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little away from the roots here. For sure. Uh, now, <laughs> the outsiders and Atomic Knights team up to defeat Organizer Katie and his robots. After returning to the real world, Dr. Jace again instructs Metamorpho to take out his teammates. Uh, outsider Looker uses her powers to make herself look like Jace and make Jace look like her. Metamorpho attacks Jace as Looker, Whoa. and her man and, and her Manhunter weapon explodes, seemingly killing both her and Metamorpho. You know, I'll tell you, Chris. One of the problems with the Guardians' plan is that there might actually be more Manhunters than heroes. Uh, it seems like a third of the population is Manhunters, <laughs> doesn't it? You know, it's like well, maybe we ought to just go with the Manhunters. It seems to be the consensus here. <laughs> Uh, now we're in Wonder Woman, Volume 2, Number 12, Echoes of the Past by Len Wein and George Perez. This is a mostly unrelated issue dealing more with the Challenge of the Gods storyline that was already running in the title, and this is actually part three of that story. There's a lot of Trevor family drama here, which without the context would be difficult to explain. Uh, it kind of attaches to Millennium when uh, Wonder Woman learns that the Olympian god Pan is actually a Manhunter. And she enters a dimensional portal to the outside world. Sure. We're going to hop into week two, Millennium number two, January 1988. Uh, Under by Englehart and Staten. Lana Lang approaches Clark Kent at the Daily Planet, reveals that she knows that he is really Superman, and insists that he call off the Millennium Project. She is... A manhunter, by the way. This is the most disappointing. I mean, ridiculous. Like, oh, oh, it's so silly. I mean, this, this is your childhood best friend, but anyway. <laughs> now, Harupa Handuhu and Nadia Safir travel the world in search of the Chosen. We've already listed them, but here are a couple again. Betty Clawman, an, Ab an Australian Aborigine. She babbles about the dream time and agrees to join the project. Takio Yakata, the businessman and uh, CEO of Yakata Incorporated in Japan. Uh, he's initially hesitant, but he does come around pretty quickly. Yeah, it seems like a sweet deal for them. Yeah. Uh, in Gotham City, Batman visits with Commissioner Gordon to discuss the Lenium Project and the possibility that the Manhunters know the hero's deepest, darkest secrets. Gordon reveals that word on the street is that someone called Harbinger is, or Harbinger is responsible for spilling every last bean about the heroes. Then conks Batman on the head with his pistol and throws him out the second-story window because Commissioner Gordon is a manhunter. Oh, no. Harbinger, by the way, is probably best known as the monitor's assistant from Crisis and Infinite Earths. Uh, her, her first appearance was New Teen Titans Annual Number 2, July 1983, created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. And real name, Lila Michaels. Yeah, and then we return to the Zamoroans just as they come across Harbinger. How about that? Or Harbinger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we learn that she is, in fact, responsible for all the heroes' dirty laundry getting out because she penned the Tome of History, mm -hmm. otherwise known to we mere mortals as the History of the DC Universe Volumes 1 and 2. Uh, History of the DC Universe was a two-part prestige format miniseries created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez in 1986, which sought to summarize the new post-crisis history of the DC Universe. And yes, this is actually footnoted in the issue as the Tome of History. I thought, I thought it was a cute little... You know, I love that. Yeah, way to turn this what's otherwise a manual into a story item. It was cool, you know. Yeah, they uh, they inform her that she is responsible for tipping off the Manhunters, which causes her to freak out and fly away. 
Uh, we're going to stick with the Guardian and Zamorin for a bit for their next visits. We have Zhang Pao, uh, the member of the People's Liberation Army in Shanghai. And she's really cool with uh, the idea of joining up. However, must talk to the leadership before making any kind of commitment. Uh, they then go to Nikolai Latikov, the Soviet official. He turns them down flat. He feels that this might be his superiors attempting to test his loyalty. Those crafty Russians. Mm -hmm. uh, the Blue Beetle visits Maxwell, Maxwell Fisher of the Chicago Police Department to accuse him of being his manhunter. He denies it, but they get into a fight anyway. As Beetle leaves, he meets his real manhunter, Dollar Store villain Overthrow. Back with Harupa Harpo Derpy and Nadia Safir, where, the, where they meet with Celia Winward, Jamaican-born woman living in fascist Britain. Quote unquote. Engelhart, I don't remember. Was Britain ever fascist? I, I'm not a, <laughs> I don't think I'm so. I'm not a world historian, but I don't recall. Anyway, uh, Engelhart showing some biting Alan Moore influence here, and she tells him to pound sand. And I just want to say that this poor character, this is the reason we didn't and would never do a cosmic <laughs> treadmill for these comics, because it's, it's unbelievable how bad her quote-unquote Jamaican patois is it really yes. it really makes you sad for uh, everybody but uh, anyway we'll, we'll even we'll even deal with that more later on uh Sal Salima Branazar sorry Salima Baranazar of Calm Iran she refuses to answer though Sophia is certain she'll come around and then we shift over to Akron Ohio to, to join former Manhunter Dan Richards he's unsure how Manhunters can be behind all these attacks since you know he was one. He's passed in the street by a very demented Laurel Kent, who is a manhunter. Mm. Back with Hippo Handbag Ho and Nadia <laughs> as they visit Jan, Jan Willem Krof, a South African government bigwig. He agrees to join because, as he puts it, any group of people needs the white man to run them. Y'all dodging them anvils okay? Huh? <laughs> they doing all right? Wow. <laughs> Then we go to Gregorio de la Vega, a Peruvian layabout who's also amazingly gay, but they can't say that here. I, you know, and you and I said this uh, earlier, talking about it. I, when I first saw him, I, I didn't immediately think he was gay. He's, he's just sort of a very skinny Latin dude wearing a like flowery a shirt. Dude, yeah. I saw him, he might be like a, you know, a, a yeah, party guy or like a, a mariachi type dude, but uh, they'll become crystal clear once we get some dialogue <laughs> out of him. And he, uh, he does not agree to join up. Uh, we return back to the Green Lantern Citadel, where uh, Tom Kalamaku is convalescing after almost being run over by an airplane. The Guardian arrives, and they offer Tom a spot as one of the chosen. Uh, the chapter ends with the reveal that current Arkham Asylum resident Jason Woodrow is the final member of the chosen. We also get a Psycho Pirate cameo, which is pretty cool, and a Joker cameo because, yeah, of course we do. Uh, why wouldn't you? If you when in Arkham, we must see the Joker. <laughs> Speaking of whom, we're going to go to Batman number four fifteen. This one's actually titled Millennium by Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo. We pick up post-pistol pistol whip from Commissioner Gordon with Batman falling out of that second-story office, and he saves himself, no kidding. Um, he heads back up into the police department only to find that the Gordon Manhunter has already escaped. Because he's the smartest guy in the universe, Batman deduces that the Floronic Man is one of the Zamoroans chosen. I wonder how that he did that, but the Gordon Manhunter <laughs> hits some Arkham baddies with his scarecrow fear gas to overcome them, and when Batman and Robin arrive, a battle ensues. Gordon is shot via some friendly fire in the form of a shotgun blast. This reveals him to be a robot? Sure, why not? <laughs> Batman takes the head of the bot back to the Batcave for further inspection, and he learns that the real Jim Gordon is headed to Louisiana. Yes. 
We're going to jump to Blue Beetle number 20, Iran Scam by uh, Len Wein, Ross Andrew, and Joe Staten. Uh, as we said earlier, Beetle originally thought police lieutenant Max Fisher was his manhunter. However, that wasn't the case. His manhunter, as we've already revealed, is the lame-o supervillain Overthrow. They fight for a bit, but Beetle cuts it short due to an emergency JLI call. We shift to Tehran, Iran, where we meet up with the member of the Chosen, Salima Barinazar. She confers with a mullah about her recent Zamoroan visit. She believes they might be agents of Allah. Uh, however, the mullah tells her that they were instead agents of Satan. And, uh, and so she is taken into custody for her misbelief. Uh, Beetle learns of her capture and heads to Iran to save her. Once there, he's attacked by Catalyst, who Beetle is sort of able to sidestep and rescue Salima. She realizes that he plans to bring her to the United States, or as she knows it, the land of Satan. And so she breaks off and runs away, right into the path of a lot of stones, because she's stoned to death by a crowd for being a blasphemer. Ouch. It's uh, yeah. not a great Hardcore. ending. Yeah, that, no. is, that is pretty hard. But, you know, this is uh, these are the jokes, folks. What can I tell you? <laughs> uh, so... Next issue, Legion of Superheroes, Volume 3, Number 42, titled To Sleep a Thousand Years by Paul Levitz and Greg LaRocque, or LaRocque, probably. Uh, Laurel Kent and Sun Boy return from a date, and the Legionnaires go to visit Colossal Boy in the hospital. Laurel heads into the Legion multi-lab instead, where she begins accessing computer files. Brainiac 5 tries to stop her, but she wrecks him with her never-before-seen super strength. The Legion then heads to the Himalayas, where they have another computer system. They figure that's likely Laurel's next stop, or probably the third or fourth or fifth computer system they have stashed around. <laughs> One of those. Uh, upon arrival, they run into monks who are, in actually, actuality, androids who attack them. The Legionnaires are able to beat down the droids and enter the temple, where Laurel Kent reveals herself to be a manhunter. Uh, she then blows up the temple, because sure. Sure. Uh, Superman, Volume 2, Number 13, Toys in the Attic by John Byrne. Superman meets the post-crisis toy man, W. Percival Schott, who was out to murder the owners of the toy company that fired him, including Lex Luthor. A Superman thwarts an attempt on Luthor's life, and Schott disappears. Clark Kent returns to the Daily Planet, where, he, where his childhood friend Lana Lang reveals herself to be a manhunter. Whoa. She threatens to spill the beans on Clark's dual identity if, she, if he doesn't put the kibosh on the Guardian's uh, Millennium Project. Of course, he refuses. She tears open Clark's shirt, revealing him to be a dude with a hairy chest. Bruce Luckily, Wayne? He's... <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, he's not packing his blue long johns right now. And so she flies out the window, and uh, Superman follows the trail to Smallville. Yeah, he's a crafty one, that Superman. He's, or at least he, he was back then. I don't, he's not, <laughs> not always so crafty now. But anyway, things are getting better. Uh, back to uh, the Italian Secret Origins, Volume 2, Number 22. This is what I've been waiting to learn about here. The Secret Origin of the Manhunters by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Howard Simpson. A Manhunter meeting, and the last before the one that opened Millennium Number 1. Uh, in Chapter 2, Revolt and Exile, the Manhunters are created by the Guardians of the Universe as a pre-Green Lantern Corps Universal Police Force. Manhunters ultimately revolt from their masters, because that's what robots do. Mm -hmm. Rather than destroy the Manhunters, the Guardians banish them to live as ordinary beings spread out over the vast cosmos, which sounds like the worst decision ever, and we now know that it was. The Manhunters discover the Earth in the year 1066 and infiltrate it. They live there without worry until 1940, when the first Green Lantern, Al Alan Scott, appeared. Uh, he's not a member of the Corps, however. He's powered by a fragment of the Star Heart which the Owens had stored in their, their, mag their magical energies. 
And we jump to Chapter 3, Dan Richards' Manhunter. Uh, we flash back to the events of Police Comics Number 8 with added elements to make it all fit better. Uh, in 1941, rookie policeman uh, Dan Richards' family members are framed for murder. He believes the real killer is the racketeer Johnny Constantino. He's confronted by a glowing light emanating from a dark alley. When he approaches it, he passes through a brick wall, which leads him to the Manhunter headquarters. The, the Grand Master greets him uh, and grants him with a, a Manhunter costume and Thor the Thunderdog, who leads him to the real killer's hideout. They wind up taking down Constantino and his gang. Uh, Manhunter ultimately joins up with the All-Star Squadron, where he butts heads with Green Lantern, which is exactly what the Grandmaster was hoping for. Ooh, all fell into his little scheme, huh? Mm-hmm. Chapter 4, Paul Kirk Manhunter. Uh, shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Manhunters decided to recruit another human. Paul Kirk was a wealthy big-game hunter who was contacted by the group after his friend Inspector Donovan is killed by the buzzard. He joins the Manhunter, he dons the Manhunter gear, and takes down the buzzard. He later joins the All-Star Squadron and runs in with Alan Scott. He's believed dead after 1946 hunting safari, but during this chapter we also see Harlequin Molly Maine receive her illusion-granting glasses and see that she's in love with Alan Scott. Yeah, Chapter 5, Mark Shaw Manhunter. It's a brief retelling of first issue special number 5 with some added bits. Uh, an unnamed Manhunter, somewhere between Paul Kirk and Mark Shaw, is retired. Disenfranchised public defender Mark Shaw takes up the mantle. He's convinced by the Manhunters that Hal Jordan is an evildoer and attacks the Justice League of America. This would actually occur in issue 140 of Justice League of America, March 1977, uh, which was written by Steve Englehart. Uh, the story title is, you guessed it, No Man Escapes the Manhunter. During the battle, Shaw realizes the Manhunters are really an evil cult and that he's been duped. And so he drops the identity. He would later take on the identities of the privateer and the star czar. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> now, uh, now this issue wraps up with chapter six, revolt and revenge. Uh, following the crisis of infinite, on infinite earths, the manhunters remained in hiding and in sleep mode until they learned of the Zamoroans millennium project. We also see here that Marcy Cooper steals the Harlequin's illusion glasses. So what all this is, is, you know, there are many different versions of Manhunters, of the, of the character Manhunter over the years, as, a, yes. as well as the Green Lantern's Manhunters, and this is an attempt to just kind of sew them all together, and it's really a ham-fisted attempt. I, I gotta say, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, <laughs> I really feel like this could have been done maybe a little more elegantly. They just basically threw Manhunters into every story and said, like, oh, that's where they got the idea, and then sure. it doesn't justify anything Paul Kirk did in the rest of the Golden Age or really anything Mark Shaw did after nope. that moment, but I guess, you know, that was the catalyst. That's the idea, so it's uh, sort of silly, but, you know, there it is. Uh, that's, that's where they all come from, folks. Now we uh, head on into Young All-Stars number 8. This is titled Manhunters of the World Unite by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Brian Murray. It's May 1942, and the two Manhunters, Richards and Kirk, arrive at the Manhunter HQ and learn of each other's existence and the shared mission to stop Green Lantern Alan Scott. The Manhunters and Doiby Dickles head to the All-Star Squadron headquarters, where they inform the Young All-Stars, who are Iron Monroe, Flying Fox, Dynamite, Fury, Tsunami, and Neptune Perkins, that Green Lantern has attacked an American military installation in Hawaii. The Manhunters and the Young Stars, oh sure, that sounds good enough, <laughs> head out and it's revealed that Doiby Dickles is actually a Manhunter. 
robot, that is, along the way, he ceases to function and self-destructs. Probably going, oi, doimy dickle, anyway. Um, <laughs> Hop Harrington takes the Manhunter and a few young stars to Atu in the Aleutian Islands, where the Green Lantern whipped up an illusion of an Eskimo goddess to mess with the natives. The remaining young stars get beaten up by Green Lantern, and Alan leaves. Now, Millennium number three. We're going into week three. It's again, January 1988. Uh, back by Englehart and Staten. In Manhunterville, the Manhunters manhunter about no, <laughs> no man being able to escape the Manhunters. Uh, they're dressed by the Grandmaster, who uh, basically says the same thing. The uh, Grandmaster first appeared in first issue special number five, August 1975, was created by Jack Kirby. Uh, it's revealed that the man that to the Manhunters that one of the Chosen has fallen, that being Salima Baranazar in Blue Beetle number 20. Elsewhere, a newscaster, who I'm not sure if it's Bethany Snow or not, uh, it, sometimes she's drawn to be a bit younger, sometimes she's drawn to be a bit older, so yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it's actually her. It might even be, no, no, Wild Dog wasn't happening yet, was he? I don't know if it maybe was that In one from Wild Dog. No, it wouldn't have been. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, now, this newscaster is delivering a report on uh, the UFO sightings. Uh, Tony Young is watching from the control room, and Tony Young is the uh, is like that thorn in the side for the Green Lantern Corps at this time. She really butted heads with uh, John Stewart a lot. Mm. Uh, so she's watching from the control room, and she's approached by station manager Mr. Niederman. He offers her an opportunity to climb the ladder if she agrees to play ball and ixnay all talk of the manhunters and manhunteriness. And she's cool with it. Yeah, she's just a uh, she's an employee. She actually later on has a kind of a romantic thing with John, right? At first they're a teased. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They're like mad at each other, but then it gets a little, uh, <laughs> little cozy. But it, I, it's not. I thought a full on. If it was a full on relationship, she would, she would die. Yeah. Uh, anyway, with Katma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who died? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's the rules. But anyway, uh, we shift to Soviet Russia and find uh, would be chosen Nikolai being interrogated by his superiors. He insists that he is trustworthy and that he sent the aliens away, and they blow his brains out nonetheless. Back at the Green Lantern Citadel, the Zamoro and Pair return so we can get, get some catch-up exposition, and also useful for folks not following the crossover issues, which, incidentally, full disclosure, is myself. I only have to trade. <laughs> Chris did tons of heavy lifting on this uh, project here, so you can thank or send all your anger toward Tim, if whatever yes. you feel is ap applicable. <laughs> uh, the Kalamaku family is, are being kept safe in a GL construct bubble, and Salima What's-Her-Face is dead. That's, they bring us up to speed on that. Nadia isn't terribly troubled by this, and even ups the ante by revealing that Nikolai is also quite dead. She's not worried because they got this allowed for attrition. Uh, that's nice, you know. <laughs> uh, they only we only need three, but we'd pick ten. Yeah. But anyway, uh, which doesn't explain why they were so dismayed when they learned Tara was dead. I guess they were big fans of the Judas contract, or maybe they felt, you know. I know I was upset when she yes. died, you know, but uh, I guess they they like that story too. They must. Uh, John Stewart arrives with a television set. On the screen is Steve Englehart's favorite person in the world, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan is delivering a speech about how the Manhunters are. Deal. They're just a silly rumor. Does this mean that Ronald Reagan is a manhunter? No, of course not. He's just an idiot. It's actually Nancy Reagan who's a manhunter. Whoa, this is perhaps the most subtle scene ever written in comics, I gotta say. <laughs> now we jump to Tokyo. The outsiders are picking up Yakata and they find themselves surrounded by manhunters. They fight them off long enough to long enough to hightail it out of there. In the Outback, Infinity Inc. are picking up Betty Clawman, and it goes down without a hitch. 
In Washington, D.C., the JLI are trying to keep the peace among a panicking mob who is assembled in the on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Captain Adam is present, and he's currently a plant by the Captain Adam Project folks trying to get the skinny on the JLI. Right. He's like a double agent a bit here. And, and that's in the, um, that's within the pages of the JLI. That's not just for Millennium either. That's sort of an ongoing yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, this is in his ongoing and JLI. Yeah. Um, now, after the speech, uh, Booster Gold overhears Harry Hadley straight up admitting to being Captain Adam's manhunter. He grabs him, hoists him into the air to deliver some, some threats, and then puts him back down on the ground. Oh, nice. Whole lot of wasted action in this series so far. You know, Booster just lets this dude go about his business. The Zamoroan duo meets with their chosen last issue, but doesn't bother to pick him up until this issue. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, no. and we'll see later on that they, you know, they they quit. It they doesn't come get back, any better. You know, it, yeah. it, it gets so like weird. It seems like there are no stakes to this whole thing, but we'll, we'll, we're still not even halfway through it, folks. <laughs> no. Anyway, still in D.C., General Eiling from the Captain Adam Project and Amanda Waller of Task Force X bump into each other. They both comment that their respective groups are sitting this one out. And they're both totally lying. Of course. Yeah, they never, Amanda Wallace never told truth in pages, <laughs> comics in her life. Uh, at Arkham Asylum, Dr. Wetson arrives to c c counsel the Floronic Man. It's revealed almost immediately that she is a manhunter, and she springs him from the clink. In fascist Britain, Batman, Mr. Miracle, and Guy Gardner try to convince Celia Winward to join the Millennium Project. She suddenly changed her mind because if Ronald Reagan thinks the Manhunters are no big deal, they most definitely are. Subtle. Well, why would, if she's against fascist Britain, why would she believe what Ronald Reagan has to say? I, <laughs> anyway, uh, they are surrounded by Manhunters, but are able to escape. The, man, the Manhunters might want to rethink their catchphrase, because just about everyone seems to escape the Manhunters. Uh, now, speaking of subtlety, Wonder Woman arrives in South Africa to pick up the fat white racist who is annoyed that they sent her instead of Superman to pick him up. When he sees how creamy white her skin is, however, he decides that he's okay with it. In Peru, the Flash attempts to convince the suicidal Gregorio to join the Millennium Project. He was going to kill himself after being catcalled by a dock worker, which must have been the straw that broke this camel's back. In Shanghai, Kat Matui, Jon Stewart, and Kilowog pick up Zhang Po. They're attacked by a manhunter who they defeat, and John now realizes they're up against a cult of androids. Elsewhere, elsewhere, Harbinger gets attacked by the manhunters, and holy cow, they actually capture her. Way to live up to catchphrase. For once, he actually caught a, not a man, but, you know, technically speaking, a person. A uh, human. A yeah. human, exactly. <laughs> a mankind. At the Green Lantern Citadel, the Chosen gather. However, the Kalamakus have vanished. Have vanished. Mm -hmm. We're going to hop into Green Lantern Corps number 220, Sacred Identities by Steve Englehart and Bill Willingham. The Kalamaku family has disappeared, so Hal and chosen member Celia Windward head out to track them down. After checking Tom's house, they ain't there, so they head to Ferris Aircraft. A Ferris employee, Mr. Donahue, tells Hal that he saw Tom steal a solar jet, and so Hal gives chase. After Hal and Celia leave, another Ferris employee, Mr. Smith, reveals himself to be a manhunter. And he also kills Donahue for good measure. Okay. <laughs> Hal trails the Kalamakus to their hometown in Alaska and tries to convince Tom to rejoin the Chosen. Tom ain't having none of that. He's got a family to consider, after all, which you can't argue. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Smith arrives, and he and, Hal, he and Hal enter into battle. 
Celia helps out, distracting the manhunt long enough for Hal to take him down. Celia loses a bit of her cynicism here, seeing how bad the manhunters really are. Tom also agrees to return to, with Hal to the Green Lantern Citadel. Elsewhere, Kilowog confronts Sinestro for killing his people. We learn that Sinestro will be dealt with after the Millennium Project wraps up. Which oh, and, and how. It, does, it doesn't have a lot to do with this, but it's there. It's it's important. That is important later on, but not, not to this it story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now we go into Adventures of Superman number 436, titled Junk by John Byrne and Jerry Ordway. Superman enters Smallville as Clark Kent, still in pursuit of Lana Lang. He stops to chat with old friend Pete Ross and Dr. G.I. Whitney, an elderly pediatrician who has delivered just about every child born in Smallville in the past 30-odd years. Now this is going to be really important. And really dumb. All right. I can't wait till we get to it. The, <laughs> the doc distracts Clark, and Pete Ross blasts him with a Manhunter weapon. Uh, Superman wakes up in a Manhunter ship attached to, to a strength-sapping device and is surrounded by a whole bunch of small villains dressed in full Manhunter garb. We learn here that there were Manhunters living on Krypton who tried to intercept the birthing matrix when it was rocketed to Earth, but the Guardians of the Universe and the Green Lantern Corps were able to stop them. The Manhunters would later track the child and infiltrated Smallville, murdering and replacing Dr. and Mrs. Whitney. Ever since, Dr. Whitney programmed every child he delivered to be a Manhunter sleeper agent. That's right, every kid born in Metropolis for the past 30 years is revealed to be a Manhunter. Can, can you program newborn children to do it, or do you have to know a special language? Is it... C++, do you know? I don't know. How do you do you that? Just have, you just have to turn the screw the other way. Oh, okay. You flip the switch yeah. to evil. That's yeah. right. That's right <laughs> on the back. Uh, Superman imagines to escape, and Dr. Whitney, the mandroid, self-destructs rather than be taken into custody. Yes, that was a, a wild ride. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> of, of, of virtually no consequence, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ultimately. Uh, now we go to Boost the Gold, number 24. This is Betrayal by Dan Jergens. Booster's pleased with himself, having ID'd the Manhunter assigned to his teammate, Captain Adam. He returns home to his mansion, where his security system attacks him. He manages to make his way inside and learns that the, that Booster Gold International is bankrupt. Mm. Uh, and his public relations manager, Dirk Davis, is a Manhunter. They fight for a bit, but Booster calls it off, agreeing to join the Manhunters himself. Hmm. At a press conference, Booster Gold makes this official, publicly giving his support to the Manhunters while running down the Owens. Why, that son of a... Anyway, we'll, we'll <laughs> come back to that, I'm sure. We'll go to <laughs> Infinity Inc. number 46. is titled Swamp by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Vince Argandesi. I think sure. that was okay. Uh, Obsidian, Todd Rice visits his girlfriend, Maurice Cooper, who reveals she is act in actuality a Manhunter. She tries to recruit Todd, who's not having any of that. The original Manhunter, Dan Richards, visits Molly Maine Scott and is attacked by his granddaughter, Maurice Manhunter Quinn Cooper, and his own <laughs> dog, Thor, which is revealed to be a Manhunter. Even the dog. I mean, come on. Even the dog. Uh, Thor gets destroyed. The following morning, during an Infinity Inc. meeting, the Zamoroans deliver a projected message in which they petition the crew to locate the Floronic Man. Because he'd escaped from Arkham with the help of Dr. Wetson, who was also, if you'll remember, a manhunter. Uh, the Inkers and Mr. Bones head to Louisiana. And Mr. Bones is like one of the heroes of this whole thing, by the way. As far as I'm concerned. I don't know. Whenever he's, <laughs> whenever he's there, he's like the only one saying anything funny whenever I see him in the store. Uh, they head to Louisiana, where they locate Wetson and Floronic Man. 
Obsidian is easily beaten by Wetson, and Jade learns that her powers are ineffective against Le Fl Fl the Floronic Man. Uh, they are both children of Alan Scott, by the way. Jade and Obsidian, not Floronic Man. Uh, that's would be silly. Uh, our man and Wildcat intervene to aid the kids. Uh, Jade witnesses Solomon Grudney battling Floronic Man and might use and must use her powers to stop him. The issue wraps up with the Inkers heading home with both Grundy and Floro in tow. Hmm. Millennium number four. We're week four, still in January. The title is Fourth by Englehart and Staten. Hey, the fourth issue is called Fourth. They are spelled differently. Brilliant. <laughs> now, the Floronic Man is delivered to the heroes by Infinity Incorporated. Batman is <laughs> literally hiding in the bushes, brooding. Uh, he smells a rat. Uh, the white racist proves to be an even less subtle character than the almost offensively stereotypical gay man by being, well, <laughs> openly racist to every non-white within eyeshot. I, I mean, we got pink people, purple yeah. people. <laughs> He's got something for everybody, too. And you he know does. what I mean? It's like you, you really think this is a situation where you kind of like be quiet. Yeah, I kind of take things in, but no, he's he's right there with the racism. He'll bring it anywhere. He, he does not have a filter. Uh, now, Batman asks if he might use the Green Lantern Citadel's computer so that he might deliver some catch-up exposition. <laughs> uh, Firestorm and Booster Gold have gone bad. Superman is away dealing with problems. Tawny Young and Ronald Reagan are downplaying the, the Manhunter threat. And Commissioner Gordon was replaced by a Manhunter robot. This was probably good for Batman to... Uh find out since he sure already but anyway uh <laughs> elsewhere the manhunters are manhunting and shouting their catchphrase so we see the sleepers and turncoats hadley informs booster that he's about to make his move on captain adam which is likely a test of booster's loyalty to the manhunters at that moment captain adam is chatting with general elling he's informed that the rogue firestorm has been spotted spotted in louisiana adam compares himself to oliver north before heading south <laughs> hmm. At the Green Lantern Citadel, Arnold Horshack, who, and Nadia Safir offer their chosen one, one last opportunity to change their mind. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Can we just get on with this? It's, it's unbelievable. Like, it's like <laughs> I, I guess they can't, sure, sure? they can't feel coerced to, too much, you know? It's <laughs> like, I mean, at this point, I'd be like, well, now you're making me really second guess. Uh, but <laughs> thankfully, nobody changes their mind in this scene. In the uh, scene. <laughs> well, there are other things later. Uh, at Bell Rev, the oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, at Bell Rev, we have the uh, Suicide Squad and Mark Shaw. They're being briefed by Warden Economus about Manhunters <laughs> being spotted in the bay bayou. After the meeting, Economus is visited by Batman. He wants to know the whereabouts of Mark Shaw, and Economus lies, saying that he's already been released, which is, you know, probably yeah. not the smartest thing to do to lie to Batman. Don't lie to Batman. Yeah, it's like, it's like uh, he's always looking at you like you're lying. You, you don't want to actually do it. Uh, Batman plays along, and he notices that, it, that there's a requisition for a boat on the warden's desk. In Madame Xanadu's uh, New York City tar tarot parlor, we're going to shift all the way north here, she's admiring a collection of novelties and oddities, which now includes a Manhunter mask. She's interrupted by the arrival of a customer, who, it just so happens, is full of questions about the Manhunters. Whoa. Xanadu proves to be, uh, this isn't the smartest move. Uh, she goes and fetches the mask to show him. Yeah. 
And so he nails her in the face with a slapjack and steals the mask. And, like, why did she do that? You know what I mean? It's obvious, <laughs> yeah. like, this is like the obvious boner move, you know, especially for someone that handles magical antiquities on a regular basis. It's like Reed Richards handing over the ultimate nullifier Basically. to just some dude on the street. Yeah, some guy's like, oh, can I look at that? All right, but don't sure. don't fire don't it. it. You know, yeah, don't break <laughs> it. Uh, as this is happening, Xanadu associates Jim Corrigan and Kim Liang return to the shop after fetching some lunch and find the madam has been KO'd. Jim finds the newly masked thief upstairs rummaging through Xanadu's files. There's a tussle that ends when the baddie throws himself out the second-story window. The specter arrives just in the nick of time to miss everything. Uh, ain't that always the As way? It does. Yeah. yeah. Once the dust settles, because if he had showed up earlier, he probably would have ripped the place to shreds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, once the dust settles and Xanadu's is stirred back to consciousness, the foursome gather around the mystic's table. Spectre palms the globe while touching the tarot deck, and he now knows they must head to Louisiana. Yes. At uh, Manhunter headquarters, Harbinger is being held in an energy depletion chamber. The Grandmaster shows up to give her grief and accidentally drops a key on the floor before leaving. If he, if it, I, I, it has to be fake because either they have like the thickest, most top quality carpeting in Manhunter land where yeah. he didn't hear a key at the ground, yeah, or really. he's just screwing with her. Um, Harbinger is able to reach the key with her foot and frees herself from her bonds. Doesn't get all that far before being recaptured. Uh, as we follow along with her escape attempt, we see a strange asparagus-headed Green Lantern lurking in the shadows. <laughs> now back at the Green Lantern Citadel, a Floronic Man is broken away from the group of Chosen, and he meets with a Manhunter agent who looks like they're ready to audition for Zartan's Dreadnoughts. Uh, just this horrible, weird mohawked critter here. Uh, now, in Louisiana, we rejoin Batman as he's just rented a boat with his uh, Bat credit card. Sure, imagine. that's right. You know, <laughs> I wonder if he got the insurance. <laughs> um, now, at the same time, Captain Adam, the Spectre, and Jim Corrigan have also arrived in the bayou. Wow, this Louisiana, this bayou, something, something fishy going on down there, some bad gumbo. And it's going to drag. Oh, yeah, we're going to be in that. <laughs> it's, it's Cajun time down there, Chris. you got to understand, you just relax. Uh, uh, Suicide Squad number nine, The Final Price by John Oshender and Luke McDonald. The squad arrives at the Manhunter Temple in Louisiana Bayou where they encounter Captain Adam. Adam realizes that the bomb the suit squad brought with them contains Zyzetium, which will not only destroy the Manhunter base but incinerate the squad before they can vacate the area. There's a battle, and a squatty, Slipknot in particular, Attempts to desert the team, which causes a bracelet to go boom, taking his arm with it. Uh, Karen Grace is kidnapped by the Manhunters, and Rick Flagg and the privateer with Mark Shaw, the third Manhunter, are able to rescue Grace. However, they learn that she is, in fact, a Manhunter. And then the real Mark Shaw arrives, uh, dressed in his Manhunter gear, and we learn the privateer is actually... An android. Uh, and uh, it actually gets more confusing from there. Manhunters <laughs> begin falling apart all over the temple grounds. Winds up that Karen Grace sacrifices herself, detonating the bomb uh, in herself when the squatties are out of range, or the bomb that was brought, yep. Except they aren't out of range when the bomb goes off. It's only through the combined powers of Captain Adam and Firestorm that the Suicide Squad survives the blast. Firestorm and Captain Adam on the same side? But how? I'm glad you asked. We go to Captain Adam number 11, A Matter of Choice, by Carrie Bates, Greg Weissman, and Pat Broderick. Captain Adam confronts Firestorm, and they fight. Uh, he tries to convince Firestorm that he's been duped by the Manhunters. 
No dice. Firestorm knows Captain Adam is a sham. As we mentioned, he's currently acting as a spy infiltrating the JLI for the U.S. military. Elsewhere, Cap's Manhunter, Harry Hadley, is about to appear on a televised talk show where he intends to spill the beans on the entire thing and thereby ruin Adam's uh, credibility. General Ealing, or Eiling, kills him before this can happen. Back in the bayou, Cap levels with Firestorm and he's finally able to gain his trust. Together, they transmute the energies of the Suicide Squad's oh, bomb. Oh, that nice to work together. Mm-hmm. Now, Detective Comics number 582, titled Soul, Survi- Soul Survivor by Joe Duffy and Norm Brayfogle. James Gordon receives an emergency summons from his old Navy buddy Lou, and so he heads to Louisiana from Gotham. This is likely when the Manhunter Android takes its place, no, we figure. Uh, Batman and Robin take him out. That was back in Batman number 415. Gordon arrives in Louisiana when he's given intel on Agent Rosenfeld, a former teammate of the Commish. Gordon checks into a motel where he's met by a disguised Batman who fills him in on what's gone down in Gotham during his absence. The two deduce that Rosenfeld went missing because he was going to warn Gordon that Lou was in actuality a Manhunter. And Rosenfeld is saved, uh, however he's fatally wounded when Batman battles the Manhunter Lou. Afterward, Batman starts scouting. He finds a Manhunter who appears to be falling apart. He also runs into Jim Corrigan. Together, they locate the Manhunter Temple and find a whole bunch of de- deactivated Manhunters. Batman runs into Karen Grace and is unable to dissuade her from sacrificing herself, so he and Corrigan spend the next few minutes they've got freeing prisoners. The temple goes boom, as we know, and we wrap up with Gordon trying to figure out what, what the now-dead Rosenfeld meant when he warned that the Manhunters had infiltrated the White House. And what we know, duh, Nancy Reagan is totally... a Manhunter. Mm-hmm. And a man-eater, too, if uh, rumors are true, but I don't know. Whoa, whoa, here she comes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, Spectre, Volume 2, Number 10. Infinite Possession by Doug Mensch and Gray Morrow. The Spectre, Jim Corrigan, and Kim Lang head to, the, head to New Orleans to visit the Manhunter Temple. I hear it's really nice this time of year. Uh, Jim and Kim meet a man at a restaurant who claims that he is being pursued by a strange being in the swamp. The Spectre discovers the Manhunter's sonic temple, and the people... The Manhunters are holding captive. Spectre tries to invade a Manhunter body and attempt to possess it when he is pulled into the world inside the bot, where he does battle with a group of beings protecting a key. Spectre wins, turns the key, deactivating the Manhunter, and somehow also freeing the captives. All right. Yeah, why not? He keeps bouncing from Manhunter to Manhunter, fighting the beings and turning keys. Guess what? Temple goes boom. Still, again, <laughs> uh, we probably should mention at this point that uh, the covers of Suicide Squad 9, Captain Adam 11, Detective Comics 482, I'm sorry, 582, and Spectre 10 combine to make a single image. Mm. These four issues are all offering different points of view on the same situation. Yeah, and versus the same information, but like slight over varying. Yeah. It, could, it could have been one issue, basically, you know, but uh, <laughs> they didn't do it that way. Anyway, uh we got Action Comics number 596, titled Hell is Where the Heart Is, and this is all by John Byrne. At this point, Action Comics is basically the Superman team-up book, and this month's guest, guest star is The Spectre, who's heading somewhere from New Orleans, as we just saw him down there, uh, when he feels a strange disturbance in Smallville. Upon arrival, he finds Superman and the Smallville adults mourning their manhunter sleeper children, who are lying, all seemingly dead, and all throughout town. Spectre informs Superman that they may not be able to save the souls of the children, or they may be able to save the souls of the children if he allows himself to be sent into the afterlife, 
Which Superman's totally cool with, of course, you know, for, you know, for kids and the love of just going to the afterlife, no big deal. He did it before in uh, Man of Steel, no, not a biggie. Uh, he enters the other side and finds himself among the citizens of a ghostly version of Smallville, where he runs into Dr. Whitney Android, and they fight. On the outside, the Spectre deduces that he didn't send Superman to the real afterlife, just to Manhunter Simulacrum. 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 There you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, simulation, I would have just said, too. Make my, my life easier. Uh, and so he intervenes and defeats the Dr. Whitney Manhunter, and at which point all the dead kids stop being dead. That's nice. Yeah, don't do that anymore. Quit being dead. Uh, now we jump to Teen Titans Spotlight, number 18. This is Sea Change by Dan Mishkin, Gary Kahn, and, uh, or Gary Cohn, and Art Thibert. Special note. The only reason the Millennium tie-ins showed up in Teen Titans Spotlight was due to the fact that New Teen Titans Volume 2 was a direct market-only book whose contents would be reprinted on in the newsstand version, which was Tales of the Teen Titans, one year later. It wouldn't make much sense for newsstand-only fans to be reading a Millennium tie-in a year after the yeah. event wraps up. It's, it's confusing while you're in it. Imagine a year out. Yeah. Like, what, what am I looking at? <laughs> You'd make you swear off everything. <laughs> um, now, uh, we join Aquaman and Aqualad as they work on the on Aqualad's telepathic powers. While they're doing this, there's an explosion, which they investigate. They find a bunch of Manhunters driving strange jellyfish-shaped vehicles. We learn that the Manhunters are here to excavate a sunken craft from the ocean floor. Aquaman, Aqualad, and some fish attack the androids and come to find that the jellyfish crafts are actually living creatures. A telepathic exchange leaves Aquaman shocked. Uh, Aqualad allows the jellyfish crafts to shock him repeatedly, which somehow causes his mental powers to recharge. What? All right. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he discovers his mental powers only work as a suggestion, which is to say he cannot command sea creatures to do anything, but he can make a request, and if they feel like it, they'll exactly. do it. If he asks nicely, you know, there's a good sure. chance. If you're going that way anyway. Uh, <laughs> now, <laughs> the whales, whales and the sharks, uh, they push the Manhunters back, and Aqualad convinces the jellyfish to also turn on the androids. The jellyfish excavate the sunken craft. The Manhunters self-destruct before they can be captured. Aquaman and Aqualad prep the craft to present to the heroes at the Citadel for further study. And then we're into week five, Millennium number five, uh, February 1988, titled In, again, by Engelhart and Staten. Harupa Hedgehog, Herp, and Nafia Safir <laughs> so, uh, tell their chosen about the universe. Oh, God, Chris, this issue. <laughs> and, it's about as, and it's as riveting as you might imagine. Uh, <laughs> Superman returns to the Citadel after the showdown in Smallville. As he enters, he finds a sassy, smirking, smug Batman being regaled by the raucous applause. The entire DC <laughs> universe is cheering. Way to go, Batman. They really, I mean, it's really it's kind of a weird... Cheers! All three cheers for Batman scene, and he, you he's, see them counting it down. It's like three, two, one. Way to go, Batman! And he, he's he's reveling in it too, which is he's I, loving it. I, I find kind of un, you know unusual for him, but that's okay. <laughs> Everyone could have some accolades. Uh, Superman plays the role of the readers who are not following the tie-in, so it's explained to him that Batman and his buddies managed to shut down the Manhunter's terrestrial base of operations. Batman shares the credit with the other heroes but thinks to himself how happy he is that Superman had no part of it. Why you gotta be like that, Batman? That's such a weird, like, what? I don't understand. Why are you so... I mean, I, again, you know, this is sort of, you know, Superman was somewhat rebooted after Crisis, and sure, they, we, can, we can say that they'd met recently, but they've already worked together. They've already been, you know, they, they know each other. Why is he so rude? 
Yeah. Uh, the expositional info dump, it continues. Uh, Batman and Jim Corrigan did stuff that we already mentioned. Catman and Adam convinced Firestorm to rejoin the good guys. We saw that. Superman starts to take share his Smallville news, but he's cut off. The way he's being treated here, I'm wondering if Superman was a Reagan voter. And Gohart yeah. really does seem to like him. Uh, speaking of whom, never forget, Steve Englehart doesn't like Ronald Reagan. He's again shown to be a liar and an idiot, while Nancy, who is a manhunter, looks on. Yes, she looks very smug as well, almost as smug as Batman. Yeah. <laughs> now, back at the Citadel, the outsiders mourn the loss of Metamorpho. Looker receives a psychic scream from Abyssia, and the team leaves to check it out without first clearing it with Batman. Uh, Aquaman and Aqualad arrive with the rescued UFO which alerts the heroes to the fact that the Manhunters are still a threat, terrestrial base or not. Superman takes charge and suggests that he and the Lantern Corps head into space to find the Manhunter planet of Orinda. And this, this suggestion is immediately shot down as a bad idea. I mean, you know, what's up your ass about Superman, Steve? You know, wasn't Superman the guy who first inspired and convinced all the heroes to take part in the Millennium Project? I know I it. He's really being treated like a jerk in this issue, you know? It's like... Like an idiot. Everyone, yeah. everyone, everyone wants to get one over on They're cutting him off, you know? They're, like, uh, blowing him off. Uh, back at Manhunter HQ, Harbinger is still captured. She's freed by the asparagus-looking Green Lantern from earlier. The Grandmaster sees this and yells, get this... No man escapes the Manhunters. Never would have guessed it. Wow. <laughs> uh, at the Citadel, the heroes ready themselves for an all-out assault on Manhunter headquarters. Now, before we leave this issue, we're going to go to your favorite part. Yeah. We're going to go to the bonus mumbo-jumbo. Throughout this issue, the Zamoroans impart the wisdom and history of the universe on their chosen. It's a ten-point deal, <laughs> which we'll try to ex explain without its horrendous purple prose. One is the one. There was a big bang, the birth of existence. Okay, uh, two is the other. The one exists within its surroundings. The others are what the one is not. Hmm. That's everything but the one. Uh, number three, the relationship between the two. The relationship be between one and the other is shaped by both and is different to each. That's the three. Number four, the reverse of three. What? I have no idea, but I assume it means solitude if it means, if it, Really, the reverse of three. Uh, all they say is the nature of life demands the number four. Oh, okay, that clears it all. What the hell? I have no idea. <laughs> number five is mortality. The one is finite. Birth, growth, death, all that jazz. Number six is the middle. Okay, this is really dumb. We're just going to quote them here. And six can be just another number, another finite number, or six could be the beginning of the second half to the unfoldment. I mean, what's about it, Engelhart? You didn't figure it out when you were writing this down? You were like, I don't know, something. I, I guess the teaching would have lost all of its oomph if it was only nine parts, you know, because nobody makes top, long, top nine lists. It, does, it's, it sounds sweeter. Top ten has a better ring yes. to it. Yeah. <laughs> now, seven is uh, maybe it's fantasy? Uh, I think they're just saying words now <laughs> without any rhyme or reason. We'll just quote the very end of their statement. Seven lives in the best of all possible worlds. Okay, very good. Uh, eight is maybe reality as opposed to fantasy. <laughs> There's some uh, blibba blabba about facing obstacles. I don't really understand what that's all about. Uh, nine is the equilibrium, finding the balances between steps seven and eight after you figure out what steps in seven and eight are, I guess. <laughs> and then ten is life. 
And we should probably mention that these bits were placed sporadically through the issue, and so they didn't read as ridiculously in the story. And definitely grouping them really does highlight their ridiculousness, Chris. But they yeah. are they're the kind of thing where once you read a couple of them, you're like, yeah, I can kind of just fly past this page. I don't yeah, need to exactly. really examine this. Uh, writing them out one by one, it really does illustrate just how silly this, like, pseudo- religious thing is Mysticism, and, yeah and, and, and i mean the the sad thing is there's plenty of actual numerical eastern mysticism that could have been mined for this kind of thing but this all seems Certainly. arbitrary you know what i mean like you number know, number five is the ice cream and number six is the jelly bean you know what i mean like you're just throwing throwing words out there like you said but uh i think that that's something that uh our audience could maybe sit with for a minute maybe do some meditation <laughs> on the 10 points of life as dispensed by the uh, zamoroans and uh we're gonna take a short break here and we're gonna come back with the rest of millennium and uh show you how this whole thing wraps up <laughs> Last year, several of your favorite podcasts and blogs got together to cover one of the greatest comic events ever, DC's 1993 annual crossover, Bloodlines. But it wasn't enough for them to just cover your newest favorites, like Nightblade, Jam, and Shadowstrike. They wanted to do more. This year, they are. In celebration of its 25th anniversary, they will be covering DC's 1992 annual event, Eclipso, The Darkness Within. Join Coffee and Comics, DC Bloodlines, Between the Pages, Pop Culture Palace, Relatively Geeky, Cosmic Treadmill, For the Non-Discerning Reader, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Chris on Infinite Earths, The Retroist, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and On the Gun, and learn who gets possessed, who fights back, who will be cancelled, who will die, and who will get their own spinoff. Keep up with the crossover using hashtag best event ever and hashtag Eclipso TDW25 all throughout June 2017. Beware the power of the Black Diamond. Well, I guess they were right. We were not able to escape. Nope. We're still here with Millennium, and we're going to pick up where we left off. We're uh, still in, uh, what, week 47? That's or, right. or week 5. It feels uh, that way. <laughs> this is Flesh, Volume 2, Number 9, titled The Chunk by Mike Barron and Jackson Butch Geis. This issue takes place after Millennium, so we're uh, not sure why the, what this is doing with the Millennium banner. Very weird. Uh, while he meets Chester Runk, the chunk, who'd swallowed a miniature uh, matter transmitted device, which kind of makes him like a living black hole. All right. Then we go on to Firestorm the Nuclear Man, Volume 2, Number 68. This is titled Planet Fall by John Ostrander and Richard Howell. While heading to the Manhunter planet of Orinda, Firestorm senses a call for help and breaks off from the group to investigate. A suspicious Captain Adam gives chase. Turns out the call for help is from Harbinger and Drick, the Asparagus Lantern. Firestorm initially believes Drick to be the enemy, to be an enemy, so we get a short misunderstanding skirmish, which is, you know, is par for the course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Firestorm, Captain Adam, Harbinger, and Drick become attacked by the planet itself. The cavern walls collapse on them. When Firestorm wakes up, he appears to be back in the in the in the Louisiana Bayou. <laughs> He is back to being part of the Manhunters, along with Chief Ferguson and Captain Adam. 
Ferguson attempts to convince Firestorm that everything that has occurred since he left them was nothing more than a delusion. If only. That <laughs> Firestorm shatters the illusion, revealing himself to be, duh, still on Orinda. He beats up a bunch of Manhunters, then rejoins Captain Adam Harbinger and Drick, and they escape the planet. There you go. Uh, now, Justice League International, number 10. Soul of the Machine by Keith Giffen, J.M.D. Mateus, and Kevin Maguire. The heroes, including Superman, John Jones, Hawkman, Hawkwoman, Dr. Fate, Captain Adam, Firestorm, Hal Jordan, Kat Matui, and Aresia, head to Orinda. Firestorm and Captain Adam break off to do that thing we just talked about. We meet the, d- the designated Green Lantern of the Orinda Sector. Nort. Whoa. <laughs> this, yes. This is his first appearance, so slab after reading. Oh, I forget that. If you haven't, if you didn't buy two and hermetically seal one of them, you missed out already. Forget it. I know it. Your, co- <laughs> your college will not be paid for. Not this time. Uh, now, he's hopelessly inept, as we know, and he's been lost in the tunnels of Orinda for months at this point. Uh, the heroes employ a bit of subterfuge to easily defeat hundreds of Manhunter androids. They then enter a Manhunter birthing chamber where they find hundreds of androids awaiting activation. Superman burns them up real good. Uh, at this moment, the High Master, not to be confused with the Grandmaster, which, activates. Which did happen to me, but. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you were alone in that. Yeah. Uh, now, the High Master activates and leaves the planet. Unfortunately, the High Master was vital to the structural integrity of Orinda, and his departure causes the planet to come apart. Uh, Superman and the rest of the heroes flee as the planet breaks up, where they are joined by Firestorm Captain Adam, Harbinger, and Drick on the way out. Now, there's a backup strip. It's called titled Back at the Ranch by Giffen and DeMatteis. While Blue Beetle and Mr. Miracle stand over the Manhunter UFO, a hatch opens and a small ball flies out. It attaches itself to the white racist, Krof, and encases his head before filling it with smoke. The heroes try to figure out how best to go about removing it. Kilowog wanders over, identifies it as a simple Grillian mind probe, and nonchalantly switches it off. Very funny. Yes. Uh, Outsiders, number 28. It's a uh, Men at Work song here, A Land Down Under, by uh, Mike W. Barr and Eric Lawson. Uh, Looker and the Outsiders arrive in Abyssia, where they meet up with Abyssians, Dural and Janelle. They find themselves surrounded by androids and pretend to be captives so they might be taken to the Manhunter base. This ruse is sussed out by Abyssian Tamira, who has allied herself with the Manhunters, and the team finds themselves really captured and thrown into a dungeon. Looker, being an Abyssian princess, challenges Tamira to combat. During the fight, Geoforce and the Atomic Knight free themselves and their teammates. Also during the fight, Looker is able to shatter Tamira's illusion, which exposes her to be horribly deformed. This causes Tamira to shatter Looker's own illusion, reverting her to the mousy, powerless Emily Briggs. Everyone's illusion Uh, gets shattered, that's all. Why not? Now, uh, the outsiders manage to fight off the Manhunters and escape, however, not without casualty. Mm. Halo is comatose, and Looker remains powerless. The issue concludes at Star Labs with the outsiders doing what they do best. Disbanded. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Wonder Woman Volume 2, number 13, Demon Plague by Len Wein and George Perez. Uh, Millennium stuff is sort of on the sidelines as Diana continues her way through Challenge of the Gods, of which this is part four. Zeus learns that Pan had been killed and replaced by a manhunter. Diana is pulled from the Green Lantern Citadel uh, to continue her ongoing story, however, is returned there at the end of the issue. So that's nice. Yeah, why not? A little pit stop. 
Yes. Uh, now we enter week six with Millennium Number Six, February 1988. Out by Engelhart and Staten. Uh, Superman and his gang are heading home from Arinda when they are met by the High Master in all its big yellow man huntriness. Uh, the Lantern Corps is pretty useless at this juncture, and so Superman is able to do finally able to do something halfway heroic. <laughs> uh, he and John Jones take the fight to the High Master until it vanishes. Doctor Fate attempts to magic up a way to pursue the baddie. However, this is the new Doctor Fate and his inexperience greatly hinders his abilities and actually almost kills the heroes. Whoops. Um, <laughs> panicking, Dr. Fate channels all the life energies he's accidentally sucked out into Superman and Hal Jordan. The rest of the heroes fall comatose. At the Citadel, Hobo Hoover Who and Nadia have entered their chosen into a trance state. After the Transcendental's trip, Saphir concludes that he will be the traitor. Not surprisingly, she's talking about the fat white South African racist. Yeah, Occam's razor in effect, folks. Yeah, there, there's no uh, twist ending to that to that little bit right there. No. Uh, Batman and Wonder Woman are off to the side chatting. Batman's upset that the outsiders were crushed. Perhaps if he weren't busy basking the adulation of his fellow <laughs> heroes last issue, though, and at being uh, glad that Superman wasn't involved, he might have gone and helped them out a little bit, you know? But Maybe. That's, that's not what he did. After the chat, Batman and Guy Gardner head out to confront their traitorous teammate Booster Gold. They find him, fight him, and lose to him. Booster really wipes the floor with them and leaves with a no airhead escapes the Manhunter's taunt. Cold-blooded. At the Citadel, Tom Kalamaku is joined by his family. The fat white racist acts racist and fat, and uh, Jon Stewart, in response, knocks him on his fat white racist ass. Oh, yeah, he, he also quits the team at this point, Croft, here. So this is how he'll be a traitor, by just quitting the team? That's like that's kind of doing them a favor, you know, if he was not going to so. be, if he's not gonna be in, in it to win it, you know, but whatever. <laughs> now, nearby, the Floronic Man again meets up with the Dollar Store Dreadnought with the bad Mohawk. Woodrow taps into the green and ensnares the no-goodnik in the undergrowth. The heroes take the punk captive and begin to interrogate. Batman bad cops it up, threatening to kill the punk if they don't talk. Uh, the other heroes can't say for sure whether or not Batman's bluffing, but I'm sure they can all agree he looks super cool. They're on it. Blue Beetle concludes his study on the UFO that the Aqua has found, and has deduced its origin as being the center of the Earth. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Blue Beetle, we go to Blue Beetle number 21, and the title is If This Works, It'll Be a Miracle by Len Wein and Ross Andrew. Picking up where Millennium Six left off, Beetle suggests that the Cord Incorporated Sunspore might be able to help the heroes get to the center of the Earth. Mr. Miracle is on board to help adapt the machine with Apocalypsean technology. While they work, they're attacked by Overthrow and a gaggle of Manhunters. Overthrow just won't be put down, huh? Nope, he won't uh, sit still. <laughs> Overthrow and company win the battle, but the Leaguers win the war. Overthrow is unmasked to be Arnold Beck, a manual laborer for Cord Incorporated. Well, there you go. Can't find good help anywhere. No. No, it's what you get for advertising on Craigslist. Um, (laughs) Superman, Volume 2, Number 14, Last Stand by John Byrne. Superman and Hal Jordan pursue, fight, and defeat the High Master. Superman uses his heat vision to turn the High Master from yellow to red, and Hal nails him with a powerful blast. The Guardians deduce that the High Master is a power source, and and assert with him out of the way the remaining Manhunters will soon run out of juice. That'd be nice. In Legion of Superheroes, Volume 3, Number 43, uh, titled And Wake to Find a Dream by Paul Levitz, Greg LaRouche, and Mike DiCarlo, the Legionnaires narrowly escape the crumbling Manhunter Temple. 
Back at, remember that place? Back at headquarters, <laughs> Polar Boy holds a meeting and sends Brainiac 5, Shrinking Violet, Shadow Lash, Sun Boy, Telus, Element Lad, Dream Girl, and Invisible Kid to the Amazon to look into the rumored cult of immortals. They find no trace of them, nor Laurel Kent. They eventually run into Laurel at the Grand Canyon, and she's able to hold them all back. She escapes and steals the detection device to seek out the Chosen. She's led to a hidden city in the Himalayas where she finds nothing. The city is long abandoned and in a state of decay, so that's all. Uh, the, she figures that the chosen members from the 20th century, you know, the ones we've been reading and talking about this whole time, have vanished from the Earth. This would mean that she had been programmed to activate too late to be useful for the Manhunters, and so she self-destructs. That's good. <laughs> Very, uh, you know, uh, tidy right there. Yeah. Uh, later, the Legion buries her androidy remains at the hidden city and mourn her loss. She was, after all, a Legion trainee. Mm-hmm. And a Manhunter. And a Manhunter. <laughs> now, uh, Secret Origins, Volume 2, Number 23. The Secret Origin of the Guardians of the Universe by Todd... Are we saying Klein or Clean? I would say Klein, but I could be Klein. Yeah. yeah, we'll go Klein. And Jonathan Peterson. Now, this story would should actually follow Millennium Number 5 and not Millennium Number 6, but what an yeah. uh, The Chosen become curious and ask Hungry Hungry Hippo and Nadia Saphir about the origins of the Owen, Owen, ways, Owen race. Uh, Ten billion years ago, the planet Maltus formed. Over millennia, humanoids evolved from microscopic symbiotic soup in two separate races, one with blue skin, the other with white. As such, they made war. Biological warfare nearly wipes out all the molten humanoids. Uh, the uh, The disease would be activated by sexual contact. So this biological disease, if if they touched, that sometimes if we touch, the biology is too much. Yeah. Um, and so all molten reproduction was conducted in the lab. An alliance was formed in the polar city of App with the blue-skinned male Apps and the white-skinned female Zamars. Their children would be known as the Owens. Oh. Ben and Owen named Krona conducted an experiment to learn about the origins of the universe, which is a big no-no, and also somehow released a great evil upon the cosmos. During this, an Owen child named Harupa met a female, Zamar, and Nadia. Named Nadia. We know them. That's right. Hey, we know them. That's right. We've been talking about them this whole time. They're older than we thought. <laughs> uh, they touched one another and realized there may be another way to keep the species going. Before they could act, they were discovered and separated. The Owens were made to atone for Krona's crime of curiosity. Uh, they volunteered to colonize a planet in the center of the universe, which we know to be Oa. From here, the Blue Men became the guardians of the universe, and they used their mental powers to gather most of the magic in the universe, storing it away in the heart of a star to ensure the people value, their people value science over faith. Which is kind of messed up, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they know that the magic is there. That it's real, yeah. It. Uh, the central power battery is created, and also the Manhunters. And as we know now, the Manhunters revolted and got their asses handed to them by the Guardians. This led to a schism within the ranks of the Guardians, where a small group splintered off and renamed themselves the Controllers. Okay, we, we still, we're still following, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> the Guardians then shift their focus to creating the Green Lantern Corps. Harupa and Nadia lost contact, and in fact, the males and females broke apart in general. The female Zamorans would leave the world to form their own world. Uh, the genders were so estranged at this point that nobody would have noticed if only Nadia didn't send Harupa a farewell video message. Uh, this distraction causes Harupa to lose three lanterns in battle. Whoops. Yeah. Uh, ages pass, and the Lantern Corps matures into what we now know it to be, 3,600 30, 30, sectors, yada, yada, yada. Right, right. 
the Guardians and, and the Zamorans are reunited in the wake of Crisis on Infinite Earths and head off to deal with their uh, pent-up urges. Yeah, they had to do it. Uh, <laughs> then the next story, Shardon, You Crazy Diamond by Rick Veach and Brett Ewins. Uh, Ewins, sure. Uh, Killer Croc sits in the, his wheelchair at his cell in Arkham, reminiscing about his fellow tenant, the Floronic Man. Jason Woodrow hailed from the other dimensional world of Flora, who went insane and tried to usurp the rule of Flora's queen, Maya, after which he's exiled to Earth. He would battle the Atom as the plant master, but always come up short. <laughs> uh, desperate and frustrated, he created an elixir which transformed him into a more familiar to us Floronic man. He's still rather unsuccessful, and this time being bested by the Green Lantern. Yeah, Woodrow would retire from crime after a lengthy stay in the clink, becoming a horticulturist, horticulturalist, and wearing a less freaky-looking disguise, which is probably helpful. Uh, he is eventually dragged out of retirement via an invitation by the Secret Society of Supervillains. From here, he's put into conflict with Swamp Thing, taking part of the, in the classic anatomy lesson story. Uh, he's bested again, and he's sentenced to Arkham Asylum, where he's visited by John Constantine, who enabled him to contact the Parliament of Trees. Herbert and Solo Who and Nadia Safir offer him a place among the chosen and an opportunity for freedom. This is all framed by Croc being interrogated under nerve gas by Commissioner Gordon the day after Woodrow escaped. He refuses to squeal on his pal. Wow, he's an honor among thieves. Absolutely. And among crocodiles. Mm-hmm. Um, now we go back into the uh, issues. Uh, Young All-Stars number nine, uh, titled You Have Nothing to Lose But Your Souls by Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, and Brian Murray. The young stars work alongside the original Manhunters and unknowingly save the parents and grandparents of the Chosen members during the 1940s. Nothing really to do with Millennium, but this issue also confirms that Iron Monroe, the stand-in for the Golden Age Superman father, is Hugo Danner, who is the protagonist of the 1930s science fiction novel The Gladiator by Philip Wiley. This story is usually credited with being the Siegel and Schuster's, with Siegel and Schuster's inspiration for Superman, and Roy Thomas, he does love his literary references, doesn't he? Just, mm-hmm. and he, and he totally. He also loves his continuity, just tying everything into it he can, you know. Yeah, man after my own heart. Right. Um, <laughs> Millennium number seven, February 1988. Down by Englehart and Staten. The space-bound heroes celebrate their apparent victory. Dr. Fate is still too weak, dumb, and inept to teleport <laughs> them home. Harbinger claims they don't have time, and so she teleports herself to Earth. Oh, well, who needs Superman and the Green Lantern Corps? What have they ever done, anyway? Yeah, who have they ever beat? Um, <laughs> the Earthbound heroes are all... Uh, they're all under the sea, loaded with, loaded up in Cord Incorporated's wacky digging machine. Batman fills in the, all the main series-only readers on some of the weekly exposition that we will, you know, skip. Uh, <laughs> they come across a rift at the bottom of the ocean, and they enter it to find not more water, but dry air. Hmm. I'm not sure where they are, but it, it, I don't think it's Skataris. No. Uh, there's a flash of light, and Harbinger com- conveniently appears. Back to the Citadel, the Zamoroans are having their chosen do some Tai Chi, but it looks more like they're training them to be a dance troupe. It's especially funny to see the Floronic Man dancing, and it is. He's sort of gangly and weird, yeah. Tom Kalamaku's wife, Tegra, does her best uh, bad guy from Footloose impression by calling off the dance, dance party. She accuses her husband of taking on a cosmic consciousness, which was sure she thought was really clever when it popped in her head and stops, stomps away. Tom looks as confused as we do. Back underground, the heroes arrive at the Manhunter headquarters. Inside, we see the traitorous Booster Gold and the Olympiad god Pan conferring with the Grandmaster. 
a battle rages. Wow, we're actually getting a battle in the main Millennium series? Yeah, I've, this is the first one I had seen, really, in the whole <laughs> I series. I know it. <laughs> now, uh, during this battle, uh, Wonder Woman cuts Pan in half with her lasso, and we see that, duh, he's an android. Uh, during the fight, Booster Gold shows his true colors, which is to say, he's a good guy. He starts blasting away at the Manhunters. After the battle, Booster proudly stands behind, beside his fellow heroes, but they ain't all that keen on having him back. I wouldn't be either, frankly, but okay. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe, you know, Booster just knew the way the wind was blowing and decided to get while the getting was good. Mm. Certainly stands to reason. Um, now, the chapter ends with all the heroes convening at the Green Lantern Citadel where... Oh, come on. Booster Gold grabs chosen member Zhang Po and flies off to show her how rotten the world really is. Why? What's going on? Change their mind. Stop. Oh, back to the books. Uh, Adventures of Superman number 437, titled Point of View by John Byrne and Jerry Ordway. Chosen member Celia Windward leaves the Green Lantern Citadel to check out a limousine that has been parked nearby. Inside is Lex Luthor. He offers her a ride and ex- offers her an expensive meal. She agrees. So you read it here first, uh, folks. Uh, Lex Luthor is more trustworthy than Ronald Reagan. Maybe he should run for president. Uh, yeah, we tried that. Didn't work out so great. <laughs> Uh, during dinner, Lex makes up a story about Superman fighting a villain called Combator. He does this to illustrate the danger of having superpowered types around. He finishes by referring to the Millennium Project as a sham. At the same time, the real deal Combator is attacking a Metropolis theater. He's confronted not by Superman, but by non-powered Jose Delgado, gangbuster, who gets his ass kicked. And crippled, he loses the use of his legs. But he was there. Okay, Just that's, that. That's <laughs> the important thing. Uh, issue ends later in Lex's office where Superman drops Gangbuster's helmet at Luther's feet. He says he knows Luther is responsible for Combatter's creation and suggests that Gangbuster's selfless act might have inspired Celia more toward heroism than Luther's attempt to sway her against it. There you go. Uh, Booster Gold, number 25, The End, by Dan Jurgens. Harbinger informs John Jones that Booster Gold is actually a descendant of a member of the Chosen, and his presence in the 20th century is vital to his survival. Jones, Black Canary, and Blue Beetle head to Booster's headquarters to find him. However, they only find his costume. Hmm. At present, he and Zhang are on a walking tour of Metropolis and come across some punks who recognize Booster as a traitor to the Justice League. You know, he did do that press conference earlier. Yeah. Uh, he attempts to flee the city in his private plane, which he's surprised to learn had been sold to Lex Luthor by his dirty Manhunter manager. Manhunter. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> now, luckily... Booster still got that uh, his his handy Legion flight ring, and so he and Jang fly away. He meets with his son, I mean friend Rip Hunter, <laughs> to see about being sent back to his home century. Rip's all no can do because he's got no working time machine. Some time master he is. Right. Jang uh, <laughs> suggests Booster stay and try to work things out with the league. And I'm not really sure why Booster felt he needed to take her along with him. <laughs> um, the league arrives, along with Skeets, and everything gets ironed out. Booster's, you know, he's back in the fold. He's a full-fledged member of the JLI. Uh, the issue and this series, because this is the final issue of Booster Gold, wraps up, yeah, wraps up with Booster leaving Metropolis. We go over to Green Lantern Corps number 221, titled Diversions by Steve Englehart and Joe Staten. The Green Lantern Corps gives the male members of the Chosen a world tour, including visiting their respective families, visiting the moon, and taking in a Peruvian baseball game. 
Now, haven't the Chosen only been away from like the real world for like six hours at this point? I, I can't. I can't see this being more than a couple of days tops. You know what I mean? <laughs> at most. <laughs> I mean, they make it seem like they've been away, you know, at, at basic training, and it really—it's only been like a weekend, but uh, or something like that. It's 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 got to be a couple of hours shorter than we've been talking about it, whatever, however long <laughs> they've been there, because we feel like I've been living in this book now. Uh, the Floronic Man and Drick the Asparagus Lantern hang out with Hal's family in California. The Stewarts, John and Katma, take Takeo to uh, Detroit to meet John's mother. An earthquake hits, and the lanterns save the day. Kilowog and Aresia take Gregorio to visit Sinestro on the moon. Wow, this all sounds like the greatest pasta dish I never had. Yes. Uh, they take Sinestro on, to visit Sinestro on the moon, and then take him to a baseball game in Peru. Starts raining fire, the lanterns save the day. The wizard... Mirwidin and Sinestro <laughs> escape from Lantern Jail. A fight ensues. Kilowog almost kills Sinestro, but Takeo takes care of business by KOing the baddie with his mad and stereotypical, yes, martial arts <laughs> skills, of course. He must have Indeed. them. He has to have them. Yep. Uh, Infinity Incorporated, number 47. Out Back and Back in Beverly Hills by Roy and Dan Thomas and Vince... Argandizi? Argandizi? Sure. Him. <laughs> the, the Infinity Incas take the uh, Aboriginal member, Betty Clawman of the Chosen, back to friggin' Australia. You serious? Didn't she just leave? Uh, <laughs> they, they meet her tribe, who appear to have a problem with Wildcat for whatever reason. And so Wildcat heads into some caves, where some cave paintings come to life and get all menacing. Betty arrives to put a stop to it. Back in Los Angeles, the Harlequin does some bad stuff and winds up knocking herself out and smashing the Harlequin illusion glasses. Oh, and that brings us to millennium number eight, the final week in uh, cover dates, February 1988. And let me tell you, Chris... I really, you know, I, I groaned at the uh, the uh, other Millennium issue where they go through the 10. This one, boy, takes the cake here. Uh, this is titled The Rising and Advancing of Ten Spirits by Engelhart and Staten. All the heroes and chosen have gathered at the Green Lantern Citadel. Kyle Kilowog informs the mag uh, Mediocre Seven that Huckleberry Hulk Hogan and Nadia Saphir are ready for them. It's Ascension time, as the thing mm-hmm. used to say, right? Uh <laughs> Zhang Po is first and goes from drably dressed member of the People's Liberation Army to Gloss, the Feng Shui superhero, <laughs> complete with what looks like uh, an incredibly uncomfortable costume and about four feet of red hair extensions. I mean, she, she couldn't look more different. It's ridiculous. No, you know, it's they, totally different character. Yeah, they take her from someone who almost looks kind of like, you know, uh, you know sexless to like this uh, bombshell or something, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, she also declares herself to be the leader of the group, and nobody cares enough to put up much of a fight. I certainly don't care. Uh, each ascension is felt throughout the DC universe, and we see the reactions of it. Glosses, in particular, is felt by the gods of Olympus and the Parliament of Trees. Yeah, Takio is next, and he goes from mild-mannered Japanese CEO to Ram, oh, the living computer dude. Uh, his... <laughs> So awful. His body's like, it goes like, like he. It's like he's made out of like silicon. He's just, he's completely inorganic. It's, uh, so it's I, an ugly character, but also like, you know, does the Japanese guy have to become the living computer? Is that why? I don't. Uh, <laughs> they didn't change his name to like Sony or something. Yeah, I've. Well, you know, since he is all inorganic now, I guess he's well on his way to being an immortal anyway. Sure. He's just got to worry about, you know, 
what is it? Uh, he's got to worry about uh, decomposing, I guess. Yeah, keeping dust out of the uh, <laughs> microchips, that's the main thing. <laughs> They're going to give him one of those little fans. Yeah. But those little spray things where you turn upside yeah, down. The, and it exactly, freezes. the dust buster thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, his ascension is felt by the fourth world, basically. The, you know, folks on New Genesis and Apocalypse. All right. Uh, Gregorio comes third and becomes the somehow even more flamboyant Extreno. Extraño, really. Extraño. Uh, yep, uh, that means strange, right? In in, uh, in Spanish, I think. Or we'll go with it. Uh, sure, why not? Someone, <laughs> someone, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, his ascension is felt by the Phantom Stranger, and in the antimatter universe of Court, where Sinestro is being held. Aboriginal Betty goes next and disappears. Uh, it's explained that she has become the embodiment of the world and will live through Extraño. Okie doke. Uh, this is one of the weirdest ones. It makes no like why it makes no sense. Why him? Why her? What? It's yeah, so weird. it's so strange. But I'm guessing maybe she'll reside in that dream time that she won't shut up about. Yes, she'll seem to like it. Yeah. Now, this is felt by Etrigan, the Spectre, the Creeper, and the fallen members of the Chosen, who are uh, Nikolai Holendahead and Salima stoned to death. And then we go to Celia, steps forward next and transformed into Jet. She gains the power of flight with control over sound and light, and her cornrows catch on fires too. Catch on fire too. This is felt by the challenges of the unknown warlord Travis Morgan, dead man, and maybe Sarge Steele? Maybe his himself, hand is weird. Yeah. It's somebody, but I, I, I gotta step in about Celia for a second. <laughs> in an earlier, I think it was issue two or three of Millennium, where they we finally they they got that Universal Translator, mm-hmm. right? and we can finally hear everyone in you know good old English the way you know it was meant to be said, except for her. She yep. has this ridiculous, horrible patois the whole time, and then even in this form, yep. you know, even even in her ascension, she still be. I mean. I do a horrible Jamaican accent. I, I won't, but it's like that. It's like it's you know. It's like right by the beach, boy. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. She uh, turns into a friggin' Madame Cleo. It's you know? so. Yeah, it really is like that. And it's Call like, me and, now. And even now that she's become like a god or whatever, she still has to talk. You know, like everyone else speaks in whatever normal. Uh, readable English, but anyway, I'm sorry. We'll go go on to the next fella. <laughs> the next one is the Floronic Man. However, he declines any gifts from the Guardians. He goes ahead and changes his name to Floro anyway, and will continue tapping the green. He kind of already has sort of a god set power in a way. Sure, so that's all right. Tom Kalamaku is next, and he also declines. <laughs> I thought they said, "Here's your last chance." I know, yeah, really. Did <laughs> never get a last chance. Uh, not just his power, but his spot on the team. Uh, he, he. I mean, you know, imagine like you're about to go play baseball. You know, you're the pitcher, and you're like, you know, I decline. I'm just declining today. I don't need. I don't feel like it. Uh, he really isn't digging the thought of abandoning his family, which it seems to annoy Hal. Because uh, Hal don't have a, you know, any kids of his own. But anyway, uh, probably because there was nobody really wants him hanging around. To be honest. Uh, Hawkman and Hawkwoman diffuse the situation and how it comes around to Tom's decision. The Guardians, the new and old, claim to bear him no ill will. But earlier we found out that quitting the team was tantamount to being a traitor. Only, right? Yeah, well, only if you're a fat white guy from South Africa, apparently. If, you're, oh, if, if your name is Pie Face, it's fine. <laughs> uh, and it's fine because the Guardians seem okay with, it, with seven members. But, 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 but without Tom, we're down to six. Ah, uh, but there's still yet another Harbinger. Yes, Harbinger, as it turns out, turns him down flat and then splits into 20 pots and flies away. Well, so much for that idea. 
Yes. Uh, at this point, Humbug Hanky Ho reaches out to Tom and slips him some latent power against his will. You know, just in case he changes his mind. Um, and also probably because he had to give the power away. Otherwise, it would have felt like he held a sneeze in all exactly, day. Exactly. Yeah. It goes, it goes bad after a week, so you need to get rid of it here. <laughs> now, Tom's power is to... Bring out the best in people. Wow, great power. Some say I have that power. <laughs> Not many people, but... <laughs> At this point, we shift to, quote, darkest Africa, where our old, where our old friend White Racist is preparing to enact his revenge in, the, in a form of a very subtle war against change. You know, it's like... A, He's also going to have a battle against puppies, and he's going to have yes. a fight against candy. Like, wait, come on. Yes, I hate good. Everything good is bad. Now, anyway, <laughs> back at the Citadel, which I really feel like we've never left, Chris, this whole time. No, I never. Like we I feel like we moved in there and settled in pretty well. We owe them two months' uh, rent. Harupa and Nadia finally die, and they kind of get older as the each one ascends. They seem to get older and older as the issue goes on. Uh, it would be somewhat touching to see them die if they weren't so awful the whole time. You know, they <laughs> sort of, sort of annoying and like, uh, you know, uh, senseless. But uh, <laughs> the issue ends with the heroes abandoning the citadel and the six not yet new guardians, so they might sort out their future. At least it ends with a bang. This series. Well, we ain't done yet, my man. What? There's more? How can there be more? The thing, Millennium Event has happened. It's past. <laughs> we have Spectre, Volume 2, Number 11, Housewarming Party by Doug Mensch and Gray Morrow. Mystical characters do mystical things with very little to do with the Millennium Event, outside of a brief mention that the project's over. Uh, in Teen Titan Spotlight Number 19, titled Once a Millennium by Barbara Randall and Colleen Doran, this issue is a spotlight on Starfire, who is enjoying a day off. Harbinger heads back to meet up with the recently ascended Chosen. She just can't stay away, even at least one of her 20 parts can't. Again, they invite her to join up, and she all hems and haws. She's looking forward to, for the first time, living a normal life, away from monitors, crises, and super types. Either that, or she has no confidence in herself, and really, why should she at this point? She's undermined at every turn. She takes her leave to ponder... Splitting it to 20 parts, because that's, like, the thing she can do now. And, and Chris, mm -hmm. could she do that in Crisis? I can't, I don't think so. I don't remember. I don't believe I don't she remember. Did. I think that's for this. It's like suddenly <laughs> she, she becomes 20 people as her thing. I don't really understand. And how is that a power? I guess it's I guess it's better than nothing. You know, you can do something with it. But uh, Sure. And one of herselves is attacked by Manhunters? I thought we killed all of them. I could have sworn, but I guess there were a couple left. Starfire sees 120th of Harbinger, Harbinger flying with ur the urgency and follows. Starfire and the whole Harbinger, the connected, I guess the other 19, defeat the Manhunters, though one Manhunter escapes. Starfire and Harbinger have a heart-to-heart -heart about superheroics, and the escaped Manhunter returns, now controlling an even bigger Manhunter robot. Where the hell are all these things coming from? <laughs> I, thought we, I, thought we, I thought we finished these guys. Yeah. Uh, Starfire pretends to be KO'd so Harbinger can beat the bot herself. Now, convinced she's truly worthy of being a hero, she returns to the Chosen and signs on the dotted line. But of course, she still has the option to quit anytime. That's obviously anytime. the rules anytime. of the Chosen. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have finally... Exhaustively gone through every issue of this series, Chris. And let me tell you, what did I say after I read issue number eight? What did I, what did I tell you? I think it was along the lines of what? I said, 
this is one of the worst comics I have ever read. And then I, I gotta tell you, that's that's not without having done my due diligence. I have read some a We've lot read of a comics, lot of bad comics. And a lot of them have been bad, and this one, I, I don't know if it'd be the worst. I'd have to really suss it out, but definitely I think it definitely gotta be in the top five-ish, you know. It's it's so unbelievable. It's just you know, the introduction of all these people, and you, like, you barely know what's going on. And I think we'd say that. But we're going to have a little more to say about this later on. We actually are going into our first ever second break in an episode. Wow. Uh, and then we're going to come back with just a little wrap-up and, uh, you know, just give you... Everyone can sit and think about what they've just learned about this uh, DC Comics event. And when we come back, we will wrap it up and give our thoughts on the entire thing. <laughs> They're coming from all corners of the universe to a Burger King near you. The Superpowers Cup Holders. Only Burger King puts them under your child's command. When they buy a soft drink, they can get a Superpowers Cup Holder to play with for just $1.19. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Dark Side. $1.19 each. Collect all four while you can. Because the Superpowers team is headed for other galaxies. And wow, it's it's kind of like we're we're like Nort. We're just wandering around these uh, catacombs here, yeah. trying to escape. We are back with more Millennium, and uh, we're gonna pick up where we left off at the end of Millennium. We're gonna discuss the fallout. Uh, first, we're gonna talk about uh, the folks that were Manhunters all, all along. Weird. <laughs> We have a random Atlantean warrior who is a Sidian of Poseidonus. Poseidonus is, or maybe was, the capital city of the sunken Atlantis continent. First appeared in Adventure Comics number 260, cover date May 1959. Mary Frances Cassidy, this is Dan Cassidy, the Blue Be- I'm sorry, the Blue Devil's mm-hmm. sister. Her first appearance was Blue Devil number 22, March 1986, created by Dan Mishkin, Gary Cohn, and Alan Kupperberg. Her final appearance would be Millennium number 3, January of 88. Uh, Dirk Davis, Booster Gold's PR manager. His first appearance was Booster Gold number 1, February of 86, created by Dan Jurgens. Final appearance is Chase number 4, May 1998. Though this is like his first and last time we see him since Millennium. He just he just shows up he, to die basically, or he he disappears. He shows up and he's gone again. Well, that's uh, you know that's the fate of a manhunter. I go <laughs> one time manhunter. There's a Doiby Dickles, full name Charles Doiby Dickles, because he wears a Doiby. A Doiby hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, first appearance is All American Comics number twenty-seven, June nineteen forty-one. He was created by Bill Finger and Martin Nodell. He's Alan Scott's pal, sometimes sidekick. I think he drives a cab a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, last appeared during uh, during Young Justice Sins of Use crossover in 2000, uh, we think. We're not sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Bernard Ferguson, police chief of Pittsburgh, where Firestorm resides. First appearance was Firestorm the Nuclear Man, Volume 2, number 48, uh, June 1986, cover date, created by Jerry Conway and Joe Bradowski. Final appearances during this event in Firestorm, the Nuclear Event Man, in Volume 2, number 68, February 1988. And then there's James Gordon. He's the Gotham City Police Department Commissioner. Duh, everyone knows that. <laughs> first appearance was Detective Comics number 27, the very first uh, appearance of Batman, May 1939, created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And he's not actually a manhunter, just briefly replaced with a robot. Very convenient to that, I tell you. I think yes. Uh, Karen Grace. She's a suicide. Suicide. Uh, 
Ah, Suicide Squad team member. Her first appearance was the Brave and the Bold number 25, September 1955 cover date, which is also the first appearance of the original Suicide Squad, the uh, military one. Uh, now, she was created by Robert Kaniga and Ross Andrew. She was a nurse during World War II who was shot down over the Pacific Ocean. Following the war, she met Rick Flagg, and the two fell in love. She later joins up with the new Task Force X version of Suicide Squad. She, of course, as we just uh, discussed, she winds up sacrificing herself to take out a slew of Manhunters. Her final appearance is Suicide Squad number 9, January 1988. We have Harry Hadley. His first appearance was Captain Adam volume whatever DC's first volume was, <laughs> number one, because we know Charlton had like six or seven. Yeah. Uh, now, this was a cover dated March 1987. A military scientist working on the Captain Adam project was killed by General Eiling before he could reveal the true nature of the Captain Adam project. Uh, death and final appearance, Captain Adam, first DC volume, number 11, January 1988. Then there's a Harlequin III, a.k.a. Marcy Cooper. She's the granddaughter of the original uh, quality comics version, Manhunter, Dan Richards, and likely confused uh, and likely confused girlfriend of Obsidian. Her first appearance was Infinity Inc. number 14, cover date in May 1985, created by Roy Thomas and Todd McFarlane. Stole the Harlequin persona from Molly Maine. Molly Maine was the first Harlequin and first appeared way back in All-American Comics number 89, September 1947. Cooper would join up with Infinity Inc. Fo- uh, foes, uh, the enemies, in Justice Unlimited. Much later, Alan Scott would be attacked by a Harlequin who may or may not have been Marcy Cooper. Final appearance was Stars and Stripe, S-T-R-I-P-E, number four, cover date November 1999. Literally the first and last time she's seen in over a decade. Again, <laughs> she showed up to be eliminated. Yep. Uh, then there's Ms. Hunter. She's a security office in New Orleans, often at odds with Hawkman and Hawkwoman. Yeah, not a whole lot on her. Uh, we have Helga Jace. First appearance, Batman and the Outside is number one, August 1983. She was created by Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo. She's a, Mar- a Markovian scientist and ally to the Outsiders, responsible for granting Brian Markov his earthy powers. Uh, she worked with Metamorpho, trying to give him back his human appearance. She helped Halo regain her memory. She died on uh, Outsiders uh, number 27, January 1988, though her final appearance would be an origin and omen story in Outsiders volume 4, number 15, April 2009. Huh. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Is they just resurrected her again for that one? Uh... Uh, you know, they are, the origins and omen story was a... Uh, like it was just like stuff that was like tacked on to issues around that time. It was uh, weird. It's like a backup kind of. Oh. I, I don't know if they were as I didn't actually go back to that issue, so I don't know if it was like a flashback or a, or if it was a contemporary story. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, we also have a uh, Laurel Kent. Her first appearance, Superboy number 217, June 1976, created by Jim Shooter and Mike Grell. She's a Legion Academy student and a possible descendant of Superman, hence the last name. Her uh, final canonical appearance is Legion of Superheroes, Volume 3, Number 4, November 1984. Numerous reboots, relaunches, and re-whatevers have rendered her manhunteriness non-canon, including her death during the Millennium Event in Legion of Superheroes, Volume 3, Number 43, February 1988. Her current whereabouts are... Uncanone. Yeah, someday we might try to pull apart the story of the Legion of Superheroes, but not, <laughs> not, not anytime today. soon. Not today, boy. That is a uh, crusty one. 
Uh, another Manhunter was Lana Lang. Duh, we know her. She's uh, Superman's best friend from childhood. Or one of her best friends, along with Pete mm-hmm. Ross. Uh, first appearance was Superboy number 10, October 1950, created by Bill Finger and John Sikela. Or Man of Steel number 1, October 1986, if we're playing the New Earth game, which we're not really. We, are, we do go back to the origin. Yes. Uh, her Manhunter past is usually wisely left out of her bios. Although, boy, she, she gets it still in D.C. these days. But uh, she would be the second First Lady Manhunter following Lex Luthor's impeachment and VP Vice President Pete Ross's ascension to the presidency following the opening arc of Superman Batman uh, in 2003. Then there's Lou, that's the Naval Intelligence Agent Associate, Associate of Commissioner Gordon, who told him to come down to Louisiana, if you recall, and was going to mess with him there. Gonna guess this is a one-off character for the story, as the only Lou listed in the DC Wikia is the one that D- Dick Grayson lost his virginity to when he was 16. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First and only appearance, Detective Comics, number 582, January 1988. Uh, we have Mr. Niederman, manager of the TV station where Green Lantern Corps, Thorn in the Side, 20 Young works. We're guessing this is another one-off character, first and only appearance, Millennium number 3, January of 88. Overthrow, Arnold Beck, <laughs> first appearance, Blue Beetle, volume, whatever DC's first volume was. The same story. Num- <laughs> yes, number 15, August 1987. Uh, created the Len- created by Len Wein and Ross Andrew. This is a Blue Beetle villain, provided a, a battle suit by the Manhunters. Uh, Overthrow would be killed by an OMAC in OMAC Project number 3, August 2005. Then there's Pan, the Olympian god of the wild shepherds and flocks. Nature of mountain wilds and rustic music and companion of the nymphs. It's a pretty busy dude. And he, yeah. is, he is an actual nature god, like, uh, worshipped by druids and stuff <laughs> and uh, in, in Greek mythology. In myth, according to Greek historian Plutarch, Pan is the only Greek god to actually die. Plutarch does not mention whether or not he was then replaced by a manhunter android, but we believe that have to have been the case, as apparently. <laughs> <laughs> His first appearance was Superman number 28, May 1944, created for comics by Jerry Siegel and Ira Yarbrough, although really his first appearance probably would have been like 400 BCE. But yeah. <laughs> um, Son of Hermes was killed many years ago and replaced by a Manhunter cult member. His death was in Wonder Woman volume 2, number 13, cover date February 1988. And final appearance was Wonder Woman volume 2, number 97, May 1995, but in a dream only. Apropos of not a whole lot, uh, a pan did appear and die in the Vertigo series Scarab in 1994. Nancy Reagan, first appearance July 6th, 1921 in New York City, New York. Indeed, in my hometown of Flushing, Queens, Chris, we used to be able to drive by the house all the time, yeah. How about that? Uh, She was created by Kenneth Seymour Robbins and Edith Luckett Davis. (laughs) She's a former actress, married Ronald Reagan in 1952, began, became the First Lady of the United States January 20th, 1981, launched the Just Say No com- campaign in 1982, tried to pass ketchup off as a vegetable, proves that if Steve Englehart disagrees with your politics or point of view, he will depict you as very evil. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Nancy Reagan passed away March 6, 2016, and was, at the time, the only Manhunter still at large. <laughs> For for completionist's sake, Ronald Reagan's first DC Comics appearance was in Miss Beverly Hills of Hollywood number eight, back in June 1950 by Bob Oxner. 
I think you've just uh, raised the price of that comic tremendously with your mention of it. It's gonna be, I think so. It's going to be a rush to find that Miss Beverly Hills of Hollywood now. Like, oh, i got to get the first appearance of Ronnie. Because let me tell you, there, were not, I, there was no dearth of appearance of Ronnie in comic books during the 80s, that's for sure. No, there wasn't. Uh, another Manhunter, Rocket Red number 7. He's easy enough to replace. Uh, Rocket Red's first appeared in Green Lantern Corps number 208, uh, covered 8 January 1987, when Kilowog, whose home planet was Collectivist, was approached by a fellow from the USSR to do some work for the people. Kilowog created the Rocket Reds, which, when Guy Gardner found out, nearly caused World War III. They were created by Engelhart and Staten. The Rocket Red number seven that joined the Justice League in issue number three of that series was a Manhunter android, as we come to find out. Rocket Red number four, Dmitry Pushkin, would take over the role in the league and was actually great at it. Yeah. Uh, Death and Last Appearance was Justice League International Volume 3, number seven, May 2012. And this is the short lived New 52 version, which yeah. was thankfully short lived. <laughs> we have Mark Shaw, former Manhunter, but not the robot kind. Uh, he first appeared in First Issue Special Number 5, August 1975, created by Jack Kirby, former public defender who became disenfranchised with the justice system, would work alongside the Suicide Squad and launch into his own ongoing Manhunter title, written by John Ostrander, in July 1988, which would run 24 issues until April 1990. During later volumes, his family is attacked by Dumas, which is nebulously tied to St. Dumas, or so we thought. So we thought yeah. uh, Mark Shaw was revealed to actually be Dumas due to his programming from the United States government. And it only gets more confusing from here. Yeah, after being believed dead, he's approached in Manhunter Volume 3, number 28, by the Order of St. Dumas to take up, take up the mantle of Azrael. Yeah. That Azrael, we yeah, you know, the Batman Azrael, the Batman <laughs> Azrael that was uh, you know fighting for the Order of Saint Dumas. Uh, he was last seen as a U.S. Marshal during the interminable Forever Evil storyline. He was referred to as one of the best Manhunters in the world, and a very New Fifty Two wink and nod to a handful of old readers who stuck around. Uh, Mister Smith, the first appearance was Green Lantern Volume Two, number one seventy five, in April nineteen eighty four, cover date. Hal Jordan's employee at uh, Ferris Aircraft in his final appearance is Millennium Number 1, January 1988. Yes, uh, Thor, uh, the original Manhunter's pet dog. Thor the Thunder Dog first appeared in Police Comics Number 8 and was created by Tex Blaisdell and Alex Kotsky. You know, dog is God spelled backwards. Oh, yeah. Good, yeah. <laughs> uh, revealed to be a robot spy here. Uh, last appeared at least in name during the Manhunter, the Kate Spencer Manhunter, more on her in a bit, backup strip uh, of during Batman Streets of Gotham, which was one of the several dozen Batman ongoings that were running before the New 52 launched several <laughs> dozen more. But canceled others, so, you know. Yeah, oh, to be fair, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Rudolph West, Wally's dad. First appearance, Flash number 116, November 1960, created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. He was originally known as Bob West. Full name uh, is provided in Flash Volume 2, number 5, as Robert Rudolph West. So we uh, continuity cats don't nervously scratch ourselves down to the bone. <laughs> uh, Pre-crisis, he, he was depicted as being a loving, supporting husband and father. Post-crisis, he was a womanizing jerk. Uh, he would appear to perish during the, a Durlin invasion of Cuba. 
Uh, he would resurface to attend the wedding of his ex-wife, Mary West, and his son, Wally. Uh, his manhunteriness appears to have been forgotten. Yeah, well, it was no more useful, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Wetson, that was an Arkham Asylum doctor created for this story. <laughs> First appearance, Millennium Number 3, January 1988. Final appearance in Flashback is Secret Origins Number 23 in February 1988. Dr. G.I. Whitney, a pediatrician in Smallville, one and done, first appeared in Adventures Superman 436, January 88, you know, for this uh, event, and <laughs> appears in a flashback during the World of Smallville, number three to four, June, July 1988. Uh, they brought him back for a uh, flashback later on. <laughs> and uh, then we got, lastly, Mrs. Wootenhofer, that's Maxwell Lord's secretary. First appearance was Justice League number one, May 1987, created by Giffen, Dimitteus, and McGuire. And dies in Justice League International number 12, April 1988, cover date. Yes. And now, uh, with that out of the way, we're going to discuss a little bit of the lasting legacy of Millennium, <laughs> a.k.a. New Guardians and not much else. Um, <laughs> now, not to be confused with the New 52's Green Lantern, the New Guardians, this New Guardians was a Millennium spinoff which lasted 12 entire issues. <laughs> and and in, in and of itself makes the entire Millennium oh, a yeah. worthwhile. It was, it, was, it was so worth this like a plotting summer-long or winter-long <laughs> event to, to have this one comic come out. Mm-hmm. Now, in another case, of DC Comics striking when the iron's hot, this series launched cover date September 1988, seven months after the end of Millennium. Why? <laughs> I'm not sure anyone would remember these characters. Hell, I couldn't imagine anybody wanting to follow the series, even if it launched the same day as the last part of the event. Um, now, at least they kept the team of Engelhart and Staten for about an issue and a half. Oh, man. Steve recalls of his time on New Guardians. It was supposed to be an advance, an advance in comics com comparable to Englehart's creator-owned series, Coyote. The, the next step in a more realistic approach to superheroes, and to that end, I got a promise from the highest powers at DC that I could do sex, drugs, and politics unhindered. He continues, I put all those into the first issue, and they were taken out. I went to the man who'd given me the promise, and he reneged, so I walked away. Oh, man, we missed out on more of that biting political commentary. You know, what might I know have been. it. Probably another, <laughs> another few uh, scenes of Ronald Reagan, I have a feeling, would have been Probably. Engelhardt also claims that his insistence on including the gay superhero Extraño, who was never outright referred to as such, paid off because it alone led to DC allowing the Milestone line to use gay issues. Uh, sure. Sure, if you say so. <laughs> the title would run until cover date September 1989. And the series opened with an odd threat of the hemoglobin, the HIV vampire. <laughs> His attack would leave Extraño and Jet with the disease. However, it's hinted that Extraño may have already been infected before the ascension. Nothing said outright, however, which might be for the best, and we're certainly not going to say anything outright. The culmination of this series is the New Gardens vs. the White Racist. Pearl Engelhart Millennium was not designed to produce any immediate sweeping changes similar to Crisis on Infinite Earths. He says, a thing like this acts as a catalyst, though, when people are, aren't happy with the way a series is going. Blue Beetle was in need of some serious changes in his book, and people said, well, let's do that in Millennium. The Outsiders are undergoing a major transformation in Millennium. Firestorm, which was originally planning to do a transformation around this time, tied it into Millennium. In the end, we do wind up with radical changes and rebirths among several DC characters. Yeah. If you um, say so. <laughs> now, uh, 
with the lasting effects of Millennium out of the way, we're going to discuss some of the subsequent Manhunters, because DC couldn't escape them either. They kept bringing Manhunters back. We've got the first one here is Chase Lawler. This is after Mark Shaw, of course. Is uh, Chase Lawler. This is the Manhunter whose series spun out of Zero Hour. You know, the one that looked like Spawn. Mm. That one. Right. Uh, his first appearance was Manhunter Volume 2, Number 0, October 1994, created by Stephen Grant and Vince Giorano. Lola was a museum who was uh, was a museum, was a musician, wow. actually. Yes, he was a whole museum. Talk about a disguise there, boy. <laughs> it's, it's a hell of a disguise. He's a musician who has summoned, summoned a being called the Wild Huntsman in order to save he and his girlfriend from harm. In so doing, Chase wound up unwittingly committing to Hunt the Lonely. Uh, during his volume, which would run until issue number 12, that was uh, November 1995, and an Underworld Unleashed crossover, so he goes from crossover to crossover. <laughs> wow. Uh, somewhere in there, he has a heart attack, and he's resuscitated by Mark Shaw. Right. We uh, ultimately learn that Lawler had undergone the same programming as Shaw, and that the Wild Huntsman was simply a side effect of it. He did not really exist. Hmm. Uh, he would eventually be killed by Mark Shaw, who was in his persona as Dumas, during Manhunter Volume 3, Number 10, cover date July 2005. And uh, here is another Manhunter, Kirk DePaul. This is the one from the power company now. Uh-huh. What's the power company, you ask? Why, it was a super rare misfire from Kurt Busiek concerning a team of heroes for hire, but for the DC Universe. Uh, besides Manhunter, it had members such as Skyrocket, Witchfire, Bork, Sapphire, Strikers Z, which is Chris's favorite, Garrison totally. Slate, Silver Shannon, and Charlie Lau. These are all these are all huge DC names. You know, if you're a DC mm-hmm. fan, I'm sure these names are right at the tip of your tongue all the time. <laughs> uh, Power Company would run 18 issues, uh, cover dates uh, April 2002 to September 2003. There were also seven one-shots to introduce the cast. Their fifth-week event. Oh, wow, look at that. That's right. Uh, we talked about that in a regular show. Uh, first appearance, JLA number 61, February 2002 cover date, in a backup strip, which introduced the power company created by Kurt Busiek and Tom Grummet. Kirk DePaul was the last surviving clone of Manhunter Paul Kirk, which, if you can believe it, follows up on a storyline from the Secret Society of Supervillains number 1 through 5 that ran from 1976 to 77. DePaul would be killed in Manhunter Volume 3, Number 11, by Mark Shaw in his Dumas persona. Then we have uh, Kate Spencer, first appearance Manhunter, Volume 3, Number 1, October 2004, cover date, created by Mark Andreco and, and Jesus Saez. Or Saez. Uh, she's a prosecuting attorney who assembled her costume from a bunch of gadgets confiscated by supervillains and left behind by heroes. It's revealed that Kate is the granddaughter of the Phantom Lady and Iron Monroe. Uh, also great-granddaughter of Hugo Danner, and third cousin to the original Starman, Ted Knight. So she's she's in there. She's got a quite a pedigree, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Her title was one of those kind of like Spider-Girl. It was like always threatened with cancellation. <laughs> and the few times that the trigger was almost pulled, a um, uh, they say massive, but who? how massive could it be? Right. Uh, mass, a massive campaign helped keep it afloat for a few more issues. The volume would ultimately run for 38 issues, which is no slouch, uh, between October 2004 in March 2009, Spencer would join the Birds of Prey, and as mentioned earlier, would have a backup strip in the pages of Batman Streets of Gotham. Yeah, half the readership demanded it back, and it was a whole five people. <laughs> yes. 
Another Manhunter, Ramsey Robinson. This is the son of Kate Spencer and Peter Robinson. First appeared in Manhunter Volume 3, Number 2, cover date November 2004. Revealed to have superpowers when he stopped a truck while saving a dog, which is named Thor. Look at that. Hmm. Revealed that his powers are inherited from Iron Monroe, making him the only fifth-generation metahuman in the universe. Wow. How about that? That is something. Uh, Manhunter Mm -hmm. Volume 3, Number 38, was the final issue of the series and featured a future story which showed him, along with several, several other young heroes, training to be the next generation of supers. It's heavily implied that, at the end, that he will inherit the Manhunter mantle. Mm-hmm. And for completionist's sake, because that's what we do, Starker, uh, his first appearance was Showcase number 91 from June 1970. Uh, his story was called Manhunter 2070, and he was created by Mike Sikowski. Uh, in 2053, Starker's father was killed by space pirates, and he himself was taken hostage. He would overcome his captors and take over the ship for himself, becoming a, a space pirate in his own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Manhunter 2070 would appear in the Twilight miniseries by Howard Shaken and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez in 1990, and also in Walt Simonson's 2012 graphic novel, The Judas Coin. And it's really quite amazing that Engelhart didn't try to tie this version in with Millennium, right? I have to, I have to say, why? Why? I wonder why he passed this over since he maybe he didn't know. It's got because I couldn't imagine him consciously leaving it out. Yeah, I mean, he did. He did so much to drag in every other one. He didn't even have to do all the Manhunter backstory. No. He did, but he still did it. So. Yeah, I don't know why he would have left that out. That is strange. But this was yeah. one heck of an event, let me tell you there, Chris. Uh, this you, you kind of, you kind of had to live through it two times in a way. Right? <laughs> uh, yes. That's that definitely we we could say that's two times too many, most likely. But I do have some good comments. Look, looking at this whole series today, and you know what what you do to lay it out in order, I have to say that. It does flow through, you know what I mean? It does. An, yeah. issue, an issue ends, and the next issue in the event picks up more or less right from where that end, ended, you know, except for the four that are essentially the same scene told four times. But, you know, yeah. uh, but you know, like Millennium number three ends with a cliffhanger, and it's, it's picked up right away in whatever the next Blue, Blue, Blue Beetle was or whatever. Uh, so that, that's, that's commendable. It definitely, I think that Engelhart was aware of the mechanism of a... Of a uh, event story, sure. And uh, beyond that, I, I, what, what, do you, what, what, what good points do you have to put out there? Well, I, I was, I was talking uh, to a uh, a guy on Twitter that uh, that I know. Uh, it's that Charlton Hero, who uh, he uh, he's the guy who does the Super Blog team up, and he mentioned that he was a big fan of it. And I, I didn't know they made those, so I, I wasn't sure how. Yeah. But then I'm, I'm, I'm considering that maybe he read it as it came out, because I think if you read this as it came out, it would, you know, just like we did earlier where we took the 10 points of light or whatever that was and right. just combined it at the very end, and it made zero sense. But as you read through it, it's like, okay, I get it. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, like, if you read these things week to week to week to week, if it didn't if it didn't hit you like a ton of bricks like it does when you read it all at once. So maybe it is more enjoyable that way. Maybe it's more exciting that way. You're actually following a story, working your way through. Where when we read it, it was just a lump. And, and it's true. Even even not having been like super familiar before reading it, we know uh, in the in the light of the present that it didn't have as big an impact as other events no, did because no. where no one's talking about. Oh, remember the event spawned in on these things. The new uh, guardians, yeah. which which is not which is not impossible, you know. Taken in the pantheon of events, you know, they don't all have to be crises. You know, there's invasion, no. 
An invasion basically had no result except to set up Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol. And this <laughs> this basically just set up uh, you know the new Guardians, and that's basically that's it. But uh, take taken as a whole, and especially with that last eighth issue, which is really just like a showcase of the who the new Guardians are. It's, it really feels yeah. like such a waste of a final issue of an event. You it's know a what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's like it's like a post credit scene or something. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just no stakes in this whole thing. You know what I mean? Like it. I, I can see what you're saying. Reading it week to week, you don't know that. Yeah. You keep waiting for it, but I have to imagine you get to the last issue, you're like, oh. Yeah, it's just a dud. This yeah. is this is what we've been you know fighting for, and like, uh, also the one thing I know this annoys you too, like you know, pulling out some of these B list characters or creating new characters to be hidden manhunters or even seeding them in uh, yeah. a little bit earlier. That's one thing. But people like Lana Lang, Doiby Dickles, like, come right? on. It just doesn't stand to any reason at all, like, you know, <laughs> to be sleeper agents and be, like, growing up with Clark Kent or be a sleeper agent and have helped out Green Lantern dozens and hundreds of times. Uh, it uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, you know? And It, it and, feels like without scope. It's like, yeah. it's like they don't, it's, if you make Lana Lang a manhunter, she will always be a manhunter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like... That 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 is for years and years and decades. It's it's still the history, or well, not anymore, but it was. But, but so you, I mean, so you go back and you, you have to reevaluate all all her old stories, and then exactly, is, and then going forward, it's like one of those awkward friendships where like something bad happened between you, but you know you're still like, hey, you know what yeah, I mean? We're old pals, yeah. Stuff. Yeah, you know you gotta be, you gotta be nice at like weddings and funerals. You gotta Cordial, say hello yeah. and stuff. So uh, which isn't what happened, you know? They kind of went, you know, like I say, under lot, the rug. Lot of lang. See, often it's it's funny that she gets kind of a rough break here and there in the DC universe. <laughs> I think people see her as somewhat more expendable as Lois Lane, which I guess sure has some truth to it. But as far as making her a lifelong manhunter, that's just cruel. <laughs> it really is. I mean, she's got a family and everything, you know. Like we know her really well yep. uh, by this time. So that was sort of a mean trick. Uh, another thing that we talked about a lot is the uh, the way Engelhart depicts the manhunters. It, yes, it's like never before. Like they they are chatty, you know. They like they make <laughs> deals with people uh, that are horrible and stupid and get broken, and they can't capture anybody. My knowledge is they were just like super killer robots, really, you know. <laughs> and uh, it takes that away. Yeah, to be fair, I never read the his Justice League story, so I don't know if those changes came in there or if the changes were foisted upon the reader there. Uh-huh. And this is just a, con- a continuation of that. But uh, yeah, to your point, it's just like wow, they're they're it's like they've got minds and they're they're talking, yeah, <laughs> and they're cutting deals. It's just so weird. They're very casual manhunters. Yeah, you know? it's that's not how I expect them. Um, no. And so far, you know, a lot of it, like the secret origins with the Owens and Zamorons, or Zamorons, and the, uh, what's the other one? The other story is, is Woodrow, right? Yeah, And that's yeah. secret origins. That actually does mine some interesting DC history, you know, that Krona goes back to the Silver Age, and that mm-hmm. that story of Floronic Man is essentially what happened, his actual history. So yeah. that's cool, you know what I mean, for people to catch up and pay some uh, respect to that. This came out, I think, before... Ganthet's Tale, remember that John Byrne? Yeah, I think uh, yeah. that came out a little bit after that, so, and that really brought back the Corona story into, I think, what would become kind of the basis of a lot of Green Lantern stuff today. But this, sure. this paying some nod to it shows that you know it was still kind of in the in the wind, as it were. Uh, sure. But overall, Chris, this was 
really tough i gotta say <laughs> and I, only, I only read the i only read the eight issues you know i didn't go into all the uh backups you know um yeah. it's it's not a great event folks it's uh it's kind of plotting it this back and forth people quitting the chosen and then coming back are and quitting you, yeah. it's like, are you sure are you sure sure are you sure yeah. sure sure it's just oh it's just one of these things that kills the stakes of the thing you know what i mean it's like it does join our super secret you know society to evolve humanity or don't that's fine whatever you want to do and taking the way you have we have uh nikolai get his brains blown out we have uh salima getting stoned to death and the the guardians are just like yeah right no big deal yeah. uh, it's we, like what we planned for attrition that's fine yeah. you know <laughs> we planned for people getting their heads blown off i mean of course i mean i can't i can't blame him too much for the captain planet approach to of assembling a group you know that pretty much is part <laughs> yes. more for the uh you know mainstream entertainment course you know you got to have one <laughs> from every nation or every nation that you can think of offhand at least sure, sure. uh the Burger King Kids Club of superheroes. Exactly. So I'm, I, <laughs> I can't be too mad at that. Although it's kind of funny, like you say, like a couple of them didn't even make it, so we don't even get mm -hmm. up that broad of a representation. Uh, oh. But I, I also got to go back. We got to give a little more nod to Celia, the poor character. Oh, uh, with call me now. Oh God. I mean, if anything, you it, this this is the thing to say. Like I'm thinking of that time when they first get to the Citadel. And they first, like I, I talked about it before, they first get the translator going. And everyone yeah. gets a chance to speak. And if this is the first time we can read uh, Extraño, the guy that, you know, the, that our characters. The Peruvian. Yeah. The Peruvian's characters. And that's actually when we kind of find out he's gay, because he goes from speaking Spanish to saying, like, oh, sister. Oh, and it's like. Hey, sweetie. Uh, talk like, to Auntie. Oh, yeah. okay. You know, it's like, now I see what's going on. But that's, 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 <laughs> that is what it is. And, you know, being. Being bad at handling gay characters in 1988 is not like a uh, unthinkable crime, but sure. But that poor woman still has to talk in patois. Like, why? I don't get it. I don't get it, Chris. I'm sorry. I, I will never be able to get over it. I don't understand why he made that choice. Like, then why didn't the Japanese guy speak in like a Japanese accent? You know, or like. No, or everyone offensive. Else, or, I mean, they, it would have been equally as offensive, you know, just able to explain like they're still maintaining their original. But no, only she has to be like, ah, oh, what, Guan, why? It, no, you know, it's horrible. Uh, it's really, it's really jarring. The, the racist is. guy is ridiculous. Um, oh, he's a joke, yeah. And most of them are forgettable, too. I mean, you know, uh, I, I won't be thinking about any of them except for the... Uh, Cecilia and Extraño in the future, I have a feeling, and Pie Face, I guess, in a way. But <laughs> yeah, of course, Pie Face, and I think uh, you don't really, you know, after the series end, they they don't really show up again. I, I, it was yeah. like weird that during that recent, was it the Midnight or an Apollo series, Extraño shows up for a panel. It's That's like, right. So weird. Well, you know, they, <laughs> they would just they mind out, him out. They hang out at the same clubs. Did you ever read they that? Did you ever read the whole New Guardian series that followed this? I read the first couple of issues. I think we have, but this might be require a little bit of research, but I'm going to tell you right now, it won't be this year because I need to, <laughs> you know, I've done, I've done my millennium-based duty, I think, for 2017, so we can think, uh, so. think about that down the line. <laughs> we'll um, do it in the year 3000. Yeah, exactly. That'll, that'll be a reflecting <laughs> to the, on the new millennium. Uh, do you have anything else uh, to, to uh, add to this? Um, it's it's just me complaining about stuff I usually complain about. I hate interjecting real world anything yeah. into these things. I you know the the Reagan stuff. No matter if you, if you like him or hate him, it's like it wasn't necessary. No, it was just it was just Englehart saying, 
I think Reagan's an idiot, and I think his wife is evil, or I think they're both not good people. It's it wasn't necessary. It didn't help the story any. Uh, it was just it was, it was petulant. And uh, if there were a ton of other real world things happening, maybe you know, if like exactly, if you if you saw like Gorbachev's reaction to this stuff, and you saw other world leaders, say, sure. maybe there would have been a case. But you know, this all takes place in the DCU. Yep. Plus Ronald, plus the Reagans. Plus Reagan. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's no other like you know real real world person there. So yeah, yeah. It, it is totally out of place. And uh, while there is part of me that likes the shtick of Nancy Reagan being a manhunter, not because I dislike <laughs> her, I just find it kind of funny. It's uh, silly, yeah. It's 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 silly and it's 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 out of place. It is weird, you know. You don't. And it's and there's a, there's a there's but you know next to the silliness there is a little bit of mean spiritedness there. Oh, and I, I could I could do without that. No matter you know it could be any president, and it's like that's not not needed. Yeah. We don't need that. Well, we both agree that we don't like seeing real. Presidents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would, ra- I I would was rather. I so happy see when it was Luther. Yeah. That or you know President Smith. You know what I mean. Whatever sure. it is. You know. Uh, yeah, President Face in Shadow. Exactly. You know? That's a good one. You know, they used to do that with J. Edgar Hoover back in the day. Kind of always draw mm-hmm. him in shadow because they couldn't draw very well in the Golden Age. But that's another <laughs> thing. Uh, yeah. So, would not recommend it. Uh, no. Really, if you want to, if you want to be a uh, real sycophant about it, you can get the trade. I would, can. I would stop there. Uh, you know, that was another thing, too, is that part of Engelhart's making this work is to continue the story through the, uh, the you know, tie-in issues. <laughs> but it makes the trade really difficult, or the just the Millennium books themselves. I, yes, difficult. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, because uh, that's how I first reviewed it on the blog, was just the, the straight eight. Yeah. And I had no idea. It's like I miss so much, which is why you know you get so excited when you get to issue seven and there's actually a fight. I know, yeah. I mean, it's it's it really is a lot of people standing around and talking and saying things that you don't really understand in the Millennium regular book, but mm-hmm. uh, the, they do give you exposition to tell you what happened. But yeah, uh, you still are kind of grasping for straws because you're going from issue to issue and like a ton has happened between each issue. So mm-hmm. it's really weird, but I guess you can't really blame that because it wasn't made to be a trade. So no, no, uh, that's that's you know what it is. That's kind of I think today they would be more mindful of such a thing because they are so uh, tied into trade sales. But that wasn't the case back in eighty seven or eighty eight. Yeah, so I was, if you wanted to read this, I think you know no matter how bad that eighth issue is, it's still kind of vital yeah. to the overall deal. I'd say read the first issue and the last issue. I'd probably do it. And just and just understand that they picked up the people, they quit a few times, they came back a few times. Yeah. And that's it. And then they fought the Manhunters. I mean, that's, that's all you need to know. They quit and come back. It means, like, what's the point? You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> and there's so many issues in this where they're like, like, we're left in the same place that we started at the beginning of the yep. issue. You know, it's obviously they were just running in place trying to keep, you know, publishing comics going on so didn't one start with kalamaku quitting and then coming back and then ended with him leaving again i believe so or i think i think it's one started with him quitting and then like in the next issue something like he and his family disappeared or something yeah that that was another weird thing like where where did did they all go but uh yeah it's uh i don't remember that ever coming back his ability to the the superpower to to bring out the the people i don't don't know maybe maybe that was just a Latent power and the people were being the best around him all the time. We never noticed it. They just people kept them around when they were at like the craps table. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Blowing my dice. Blowing yeah. my dice up my face. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh boy, but I I I've said I said this to Chris before we recorded, and I still think it's true that I believe that now this podcast is the definitive internet resource for the Millennium <laughs> event from DC Comics 1988, and whether that was a good or necessary thing, we will leave the listener to decide. But oh, it, we know about the necessary part. Yeah, so good <laughs> is is for you to decide. Necessary, it is. It was not necessary, but it was very, really well done and uh, really well laid out I, I think i think you did a, a bang up job and it's given us it's given us a lot of uh you know it's, this kind of is a test for things we are thinking of doing in the future yes. with what we would call more important or better liked events i would say at sure, least uh, sure. this is so, a pilot yeah this is a pilot we, we felt like you could have a little fun or you know test some things here but anyway mm-hmm. uh We'd love to know what you think about it, if you've read it, if you haven't read it, if you want to read it, if you want to talk about the Manhunters or uh, the Guardians or whatever else we talked about in this episode, you can email us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at Cosmic T-Mill History, on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, every week, every day, I'm sorry, you should go check out Chris's and InfiniteEarth.com. This whole thing started with Chris doing a uh, series on his blog, and I'm, I'm, we're, I'm going to put a link to uh, those reviews in the show notes. And Excellent. Right now, you're working on uh, the Eclipso, the Dark. Another spin. event, yes. That's right, another <laughs> event is going through. Uh, so you got to check it out. It's been great. It's It's been uh, full of a lot of variety lately, and uh, I really like it, and you got to look Thank at you. it. So uh, I... I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? I think we finally escaped. Yep, I think we have escaped the Manhunters. So until next time, folks, I want you to keep it weird historically. See ya.